This episode is sponsored by 511 Tactical, a company that I've used for around 14 years now and continue to use to this day. And they are offering you, the audience, a 15% discount, not on one purchase, but continuously. And I'll give you that code in just a moment. But I want to do a product showcase on their new Atlas sneakers and boots. So I'm a big believer in the fact that footwear can either improve our health or break down our health. And the Atlas sneaker actually has a new foam system that disperses the body weight, whether just the body weight, whether it's a a vest and a gun, whether it's EMS bags being carried. And on top of that, they're lightweight, despite having the same protection that's required in the tactical space. So I have a pair of Atlas sneakers myself, and I can attest they're extremely comfortable. On top of footwear, of course, 5.11 offers a gamut of uniforms and equipment, whether it's plate carriers, backpacks, flashlights, you name it, they have it. All you have to do is go to 5.11tactical.com and use the code SHIELD15. That's S-H-I-E-L-D-1-5 at 5.11tactical.com and you will save every time you purchase. And to learn more about the company 5.11 Tactical, You can listen to episode 338 of the Behind the Shield podcast with the CEO, Francisco Morales. Welcome to episode 439 of Behind the Shield podcast. As always, my name is James Gearing, and this week it is my absolute honor to welcome on the show, Jason Bitzer. Now, Jason grew up in New Jersey, bodyboarding on the New Jersey shore, and ultimately transitioned to becoming a pro bodyboarder and a lifeguard on Oahu. So we discuss a host of topics from his journey to Hawaii, shark attacks, the importance of fitness standards in lifeguarding, his award-winning rescues, underwater training, breath work, his nonprofit Never Off Duty, and so much more. Before we get to that conversation, as I say every week, please just take a moment, go to whichever app you listen to this on, subscribe to the show, leave feedback, and leave a rating. Each five-star rating elevates this podcast, making it more visible for others to find. And this is a free library for you, the audience. So all I ask in return, the only thing is that you help pay it forward and share these incredible men and women's stories so I can get them to everyone else who needs to hear them. So with that being said, I introduce to you, Jason Bitzer. Enjoy. Well, Jason, I want to start by saying thank you so much for taking the time to come on the Behind the Shield podcast today. Um, right on. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Now, as again, as I do often, I got the time zones wrong. So <laughs> what's <laughs> yeah. the worst is, is the UK. They actually don't switch their clocks until like yeah. three or four weeks after we do. So then I always yeah. screw that up too. <laughs> so. yeah. uh, that kind of makes sense too, because Hawaii, it's kind of a throw off to a daylight savings time for the mainland. Oh, is it? Okay. Yeah, everybody kind of gets it. They're always off by an hour. So I'm I'm up super early anyway. So they kind of get lucky. When (laughs) I tell them what time it is, they're always like, oh, so sorry. I'm like, it's all right. (laughs) All right. Well, I always do my research before we start. And as we mentioned before I hit record, I am about to get Rich Graham, the man behind uh, Full Spectrum Warrior on the show. And you guys actually grew up together. So I'd like to start at the very beginning. So tell me where you were born and then tell me about your family dynamic, what your parents did and how many siblings. Yeah, so um, I was born, let's see, I was born in Neptune, New Jersey. It's kind of like, that's the main hospital for all the New Jersey shore. 
So Rich and I are probably born in the same hospital. He's a year younger than me. Um, I had a little bit different path. Uh, Rich grew up uh, pretty uh, central to a very core community that I, I went to high school with. It's uh, Manasquan in the Brielle area. And I kind of bounced around. My, my father was um, a fundraiser for an organization which you probably have in Florida. It's called the Police Athletic League. So the PAL and uh, the FOP a bit as well. But um, what he did is he created programs for the youth. Um, he would build the buildings. So he would raise money, create um, like a fundraiser for certain towns, say like Metuchen in New Jersey or like Bricktown, New Jersey is another one he did. And he would uh, raise the money so they could make like the boxing ring. They could make the baseball field. They could make the basketball stadium and kind of uh, and everywhere, even from like Camden, New Jersey, all the way up to Elizabeth. He had all these these uh, projects that he built throughout New Jersey. And I used to I used to travel with him. So New Jersey is my home. And I, I kind of I, I haven't been there permanently since I've been 18. But I know the place like the back of my hand um, just because of him going from town to town. And basically going from, you know, from foundation up building these uh, youth programs and then kind of leaving that town and going to the next one and doing it again. And it's it's kind of like uh, it's funny because I didn't even realize what I'm doing now with Never Off Duty, but it's kind of an extension. What he used to do is go into areas that of need with less affluent kids that needed a, an out and gave them a route like here's your sporting program. We're going to help you with their school. There's tutoring after. And he he kind of set these things up all throughout New Jersey. So when I go home and I drive down the parkway and the turnpike, I'm like, Oh, I remember going there as a kid. And I remember going there as a kid and that kind of thing. Pretty interesting. See, that is. And I had a guy, um, Pat Russo on the show who did, he's the man behind, uh, what's now known, I think is, uh, New York, New York cops and kids. I think it is the title. Now they changed it, but basically it's a kind of the same model as PAL. Yeah. Yeah. Like a bridge program to bring them together kind of thing. Yeah, exactly. And and the um the there's a group group here that does mentoring program in the fire service. So they prepare these kids for fire academy. Actually, I just went and got a coffee in Starbucks a couple of days ago and this kid came over and shook my hand and said, Listen to the podcast, but he also got um one of the sponsored spots to Fire Academy. So he went to that program oh, cool. and now is a firefighter and he's about to test for our local departments. Oh, that's great. So they, they put them in like fire sciences and they pay for their Everything. That's great. That, yeah. That's that's awesome. That's something I want to do out here is extend to for EMTB. Like we're doing the baseline for never off duty. So it's like EMR, lifeguard, BLS. But I want to be able to, if guys want to go to the fire science program or go to say like an EMTB course, we find scholarships for it. Yeah. So with the, that's, that's big, you know, that's that changes lives right there. Well, exactly. So I was going to ask you. So you had the lens as a young boy watching your dad. Tell me some of the things you saw as far as some of the the communities that he was building in, but some some of the opportunities that was created by empowering the children of that community? Well, like I think depending on where you live in the world, you can still project yourself to kind of an inner city place. So my dad would work in say like Bayonne, New Jersey or Elizabeth, New Jersey, um, even Bricktown, New Jersey, and just places and uh, and Camden and all these different, say, na- name a city in New Jersey, Newark. And um there's these there's these high density places with a lot of kids, and there's basically one road with two paths that they lead to. And you know you go one road is the professional path, and one road is the streets. And sometimes they mesh because in the middle of those both of where you're going is a basketball court or a football field or a you know a, a baseball diamond. And what he did and what I see is like such a benefit is that he created sport as a path 
through the facilities and through the um, the volunteers that would, you know, teach the Golden Gloves boxing, run the baseball team. And these kids would get mentors, but it would be fun. So they didn't even know they were getting mentored. So instead of going like, hey, I'm going to hang out at the, you know, the basketball court in the middle of an area that, you know, might have some not the most up and up things going on. I'm going to come to the, the PAL center where I could I could box in the morning. I could play basketball with my friends in the afternoon. I could get tutoring you know, from freely from the people that were just volunteering there. So they, they would hang out there and I would hang out there. That's how I grew up really. If I wasn't at the beach with my mom, I was, I was at one of the PAL centers with my dad because he was running them from the ones that were already created for the maintenance. So he'd go back and do the program again. And they would run these like different events. They would make like circuses for the kids and uh, local businesses could sponsor the circus, you know, put up a banner or, or like support the band and the the ticket sales would go straight back into running the programs. So I kind of saw it from end to end, like the idea, the project, the completion of the project, the upkeep of the project, and then the result of which is the kids that got a better shot at life where they're basically, you know, between six, eight an hour, eight hours a day, either before or after school or, you know, in the summertime, they had these programs didn't cost them a dime and they could just show up and, and be a part of it. And they came through through law enforcement, didn't they? These were, these were police, police sponsored yeah. events. So the difference is like the police athletic league and then there's uh, the FOP, the fraternal order of police. That's more for, it's like a, almost like a safety net for uh, fallen police officers is the FOP. The PAL is kind of like uh, hearts and minds, you know, like let's, let's outreach to the public. Let's do something for them, show them that we are here for the community and then give back to the community that we're servicing. Because when you think about it, if you're doing it that way, it's a win-win from, from the way I look at it, because not only are you interfacing the, you know, the active duty police officers, but you're giving back to the community and then you're taking them out of the element that you're trying to prevent in the first place. So you're giving them a, a resource so you don't like, hey, we, we would rather prevent. It's almost like a lifeguarding version of police work is like we're preventing the actionable issues that can happen, you know, because it's the same idea. You're, you would rather prevent than respond to a lot of things in life, you know. Absolutely. Well, it reminds me of another program I had um, Sir Tom Hewitt on who has a foundation in South Africa called Surfers Not Street Kids. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I know the one. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. So yeah. the same thing. They go into South Africa. They take these kids, many of whom are orphans because of the uh, AIDS epidemic and all these these areas they have. And some of them have been on the on the world tour. So yep. the same yep. exact thing. So I think the power of mentorship is something that's lost in the discussion yeah. at the moment. Yeah, I think it's honestly generationally probably the most uh, like it's the most poignant conversation you need to have because you know, thing, things don't change unless things change. I like to say a lot. So if you don't, if you don't get involved and you don't help this current generation, then 10, 15 now, years from now, there's not going to be any change. So it really takes people that want to do something to not talk about it, but actually put, you know, put their feet to the ground and start moving or else it, it won't go anywhere. And I, I've been to South Africa. Uh, is it run out of Durban or is it, where's their base? I think it is Durban actually. Yeah. 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 I spent a lot of time in Durban and like, um, a uh, little bit down the south coast, like a Manzatoti and that, but I've been to South Africa before for a couple months. Yeah, yeah. So I, I know, I know what I know what he's doing there. Like it's it's pretty intense because he's helping. It's it's a it's a big that's a big population to try to tend to, you know, of helping people. But they have the beach right there. You know, it's a great thing. It's a, it's another resource to keep them out of the the bad stuff. Yeah. Well, what was interesting, and you'll you'll find this interesting from from the uh, lifeguard slash bodyboard perspective is from what I understand, um, I don't know if it was the British, the Dutch, whatever the, the settlers were at the time, but they would tell them, 
you know that there were there were monsters in there you know and they were they were kind of kind of like i think the british did with cows that's why you know the oh, indians don't eat cows yeah with sharks yeah which, so so they didn't swim south africa with the sharks <laughs> yeah i mean it's a real thing but yeah but so you have all these you know lo- local south africans that live right by the coast that actually can't swim so that was another yeah, barrier which, they had which, to overcome which, which i which is um basically the, the like the antithesis to lifeguarding um, because if you think about that, you're trying to prevent, so you'd rather have a bunch of really good, uh, swimmers, you know what I mean? Sorry, my phone was going off there. Um, you'd rather have proficient watermen than not. And then you have like a holiday, like Christmas comes up and everyone flocks to the beach and then your whole population can't swim. And you've got, you know, one lifeguard for a thousand people in the ocean. It's like, good luck. You know what I mean? It's, that's, that's a bad recipe. Yeah. So yeah, I think that's smart, you know, and they should be doing it that way, you know, reaching out and getting everyone competent, you know? Absolutely. So, well, when most of us, us ignorant people in the South or from other countries think about New Jersey, surfing mm. is not the image that pops in my mind initially. Yeah. So that's, tell that's... me about coastal life in New Jersey for you as a child. Sure. So um, New Jersey is an interesting place and it still to this day probably gets looked over as a surf destination. That's for sure. I don't, I don't see a lot of people like actually putting in their mind, like, oh, I want to go surf New Jersey or New York even uh, for that matter. But the more I've lived in, I, I've been all over the world. I, I did the world tour for about eight years. I've surfed the best waves in the world. I will honestly say New Jersey is some of the best surf that I've ever surfed. And that's, I'm not saying that's a hype up. I, I actually like miss it when I miss a swell there. The reason that it gets such a deterrent and kind of like a stigma is because of the cold. Because you, when you think of New Jersey, you think of like, you know, just Hollywood perspective of it. It's like uh, the gutter of New York, so to say. And where I grew up, it, it couldn't be further from the truth because it's it's basically a two mile, uh, a two square mile town that's basically maybe not so much now after COVID with people moving to the coast and stuff out of New York. But when I was growing up, it was a long lining fisherman town carpenter you know middle class town and you know small community everyone knew each other and the waves were really good it's just that you have a barrier to entry when you're a young kid with really bad wetsuits when i was growing up because it's you know could be a foot of snow or hailing or sub sub zero temperatures or you know in 30s or below so me getting on my bike to go surf those waves is and uh, and my friends as well there's a big like you have to have a hyper amount of determination to do it because as like a 38 year old, a 39 year old father right now, like, am I going to go back in the middle of February and go surf eight foot shore break in the middle of winter? Like I got to really, I don't know, gut check. I think I'd rather surf 15 foot pipe. You know what I mean? Like it's just, it's such a hard, the waves are so good, but it's such a hard mental, you have to have a really big fortitude to even get in the water in the dead of winter. So I think that's why for so long, it's like without the internet, nobody knew what was going on in the winter. And meanwhile, there's some of the best surf, honestly, in mainland America is in New Jersey. That's that's just a fact. Yeah. Uh, See, it's interesting. There's another a couple of things. I I used to work on summer camps in New York years ago, and there was a Scottish girl that came, Jill, and she was a national champion, and she's actually surfing in Scotland. It's another place you don't think of. And then yeah, really good waves. Yeah, there's insane waves. Scotland, Ireland. It's it's just again, it's the cold that people stop thinking about. They've honest. I went to Ireland this right uh, 2019, and I have a really good friend who's a firefighter. Um, Pedro uh, 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 Conroy, Peter Conroy, we call him Pedro, but he's a, a firefighter and a jet ski operator um, that does all the water safety for Irish tow. 
I'm telling you, pound for pound, they have the best surf compared to Hawaii. It could be as good or better because they have such a diverse coastline. And that that area of Europe is just like wave laden. But again, you have that barrier to entry for cold water. So it's like you got to be really willing to put yourself in the elements. Yeah, there's another uh, female firefighter here in the US, and I believe she's in the Pacific Northwest. And when she posts her surfing videos, she looks like a seal. Like you can just see her face poking out of her set, and there's icicles off her chin. And yeah, but again, that was me. yeah, I used to um, get to school at like eight o'clock, and I had already surfed, and I rode my bike about two miles, uh, and then crossed an inlet to go surf. There was a wave that was on just on the other side of like you know like a they have them all over Florida, just the waterways with the inlet. And uh, by the time I got on my bike and rode back two miles to go change, I would have icicles coming off the hood of my wetsuit. And then I would get to, and I would get into uh, class and I would have this big red ring around my face. And people were like, what is wrong with this kid in water <laughs> pouring out of my nose? Because there wasn't like, it wasn't like five or 10 other kids doing the same thing. I think I was literally the only one crazy enough to wake up at 530, go surf for 40 minutes before we would go to school in the dead of winter. So I looked like a lunatic, to be honest, probably. Yeah, it's pretty funny. <laughs> well, I heard you telling Rich as well, um, you know, you're known for your body build, bodybuilding, bodyboarding, not stand-up. <laughs> Don't worry. No. I, had a, I had a newspaper guy come once and he was like, you're a bodybuilder? I was like, oh, no, no, no. <laughs> just, yeah, I build like, cars. <laughs> yeah. Um, but no, but so you were a bodyboarder when, yeah, as, as the phrase says, before it was cool kind of thing. So yeah, what made exactly. you choose that over the stand-up? You know, I, I can surf, uh, you know, probably uh, contrary to popular knowledge, but I actually can shortboard. Um, all my friends are shortboarders. The thing is, there's a wave very close to my home um, that is extremely heavy, like pound for pound as heavy as any wave I've surfed. And the bodyboard is a vehicle that is meant for waves of consequence. Now, again, it sounds contrary being New Jersey, but there's a very consequential wave there. And in the middle of winter with all that gear, you got 20 pounds of wetsuits, it's probably lighter now with technology. But when I was surfing, it was easy, 20, 25 pounds of water-filled wetsuit. It was the best vehicle to get the best barrels you possibly could. And I never, like, even though I, I enjoy surfing, I, I like seeing guys do turns and airs. And then these days, the, the performance level is so high that it's comparable to what bodyboarding was then. At the time, bodyboarders were doing stuff that surfers weren't even doing. They were blasting airs out of barrels. They were getting deeper than anyone. And the approach where I grew up surfing, there was nobody doing what we could do on a bodyboard on a surfboard. That's changed. Like you watch like, uh, like a friend like John John Florence or like a Nathan Florence, the brothers and Ivan. Those guys are basically bodyboarders riding a surfboard the way they ride, a, ride it. They're, they're as critical on the foam ball as you can. They're hitting sections that only bodyboarders used to hit. It's progressed. But when I was growing up, there was none of that. There was like one guy, maybe Christian Fletcher and even my, my neighbor out here, Nathan Fletcher. Those were the guys and they all hung out with bodyboarders. So like the, the bodyboard, even to today, it will, it's the, you can, ha you can have the easiest barrier to entry. Anybody can do it, but you can take it to a level in, in uh, surfing heavy critical waves that no other tool can do. And that's still, it really is still the way, like you can do things on a bodyboard you can't do on a surfboard. It's just facts. Well, we're kind of jumping ahead a little bit, but just to touch on what you ended up doing, which was lifeguarding. How much did the bodyboarding factor in? Because when we're rescuing on a board, we're not standing up. We're always on, on our belly paddling and using it as a buoyancy aid to bring the, the, the casualty back. Yeah, and the, the fins is a big thing. So you'll see, um, like I have board skills just from, from time in. And like I said, I surf too. But the problem is, is when you get a lifeguard that never body surfed or bodyboarded, 
they have an issue with the fins. And the majority of stuff we do in Hawaii is shore break rescue where you have to run and enter the water with fins on. So they're at a disadvantage for me. It was like, I can, I could literally do a sprint in fins and I did it growing up. So, and so as a lot of, a lot of my coworkers, the guys that have grew up bodyboarding, they're like Waimea, Keiki Beach, Sandy Beach, Makapu, all the, like the names of the beaches you see that have the most, you know, risk factor because that's where people get in major trouble that aren't competent. Cause you need a lot of skill to get out to pipe, to get out to, you know, outside Waimea or the outer reefs people can get sucked off the beach like that. So if you don't have fin skills, you're, 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 you're basically 50% of your tool chest of making rescues and lifeguarding is gone. So I was definitely, and so are my, my coworkers that have fin skills are way above, you know, it's like, it's, it's one of those skills that can't teach you in two months in training. You need, that's a lifetime. So I'm proficient in fins. And I like with my kids, I make sure like my daughter surfs now, she's a very competent little seven-year-old, but it's the water skills, learning how to use your fins, learning how to stay afloat, dealing with shore break. Those are the things that you need to learn when you're young because they they translate later, if that makes sense. No, absolutely. So so you're in New Jersey. You're you know going through high school. You're an avid bodyboarder. What about career aspirations? Were you thinking that was going to lead to something, or did you have a completely different career in mind? You know, I I was at a linear focus. I, there was there was I, I didn't even know if there could be a valid career. Like I saw there's magazines and I see people at sponsors, but I was just like, I'm going to be a professional bodyboarder. Like, that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to do whatever I need to do. It's kind of funny because that's how I looked at Rich and he was a year younger than me, but I saw what he was doing for his career where I would see him go to that same inlet where I was paddling across the middle of winter to go surf. I would see him jump in in November and December and swim a mile. I'm like, this guy's as crazy as I am. What is he he had a linear path as he wanted to be a seal. So his junior and senior year, he was already like, okay, I'm doing this. And I'm already, okay, I'm doing this. And I, I, I need to ask him one day, but I know what fueled me is that everyone, even though they were my friends, told me I, no way you were going to pull it off. So I'm sure when you hit something of a level as accomplishment as being a seal, there's probably some doubters even if it's yourself doubting you, cause it's some pretty, you know, gnarly stuff. You got to go through hell week and so on and so forth. And for me, the goal was so far high above where I was being in New Jersey, not even a surf center, but I knew there was these guys that were world champions and they were on tour or they're these, I was like, there is a way to do it. I just have to figure out how to kind of one, increase my skill set as quick as possible. Cause I'm at a disadvantage. I'm not living in Australia. I'm not living in Hawaii. You know, I'm not even living in California where it's easy to surf all year. And I was like, okay, well, the only way to do that is the day I get out of high school, I got to figure out a way to get to Hawaii because that's where the world championship at pipeline was. And I was like, that's it. That's, there's no other way. So that's the first step. And that's what I did is I just moved out here. And luckily, um, there's a, a family, the Florences, like I was just saying, they, their mom was very nice enough to let me sleep on the kid's floor, basically, and babysit for cheap rent. And that's how I got out here. And I was going to school out here part time, too. So but that's how I got out here. So you babysat yeah. what was going to be a, a surfing phenom. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's <laughs> a pretty cool I, story. I should have I should have made a bet back then and that was going to happen because <laughs> all three of them, all three of those kids, they're um, they're a testament to anything you want to do if you put in the time it will it will pan out because people are like oh those those kids are so talented i'm like the hours of water time whether and skateboarding too as well the hours that they put in natural talent i i tell my kids i tell my wife i was like it will only get you to the show 
you have to put in the time. And the more time you put in, it's like the odds are just ever ticking in your favor. It's the same thing with me becoming a lifeguard at one point, like, hey, it might be this kid from New Jersey, but if I put in the time long enough, you're going to be undeniable. And whether they want you there or not, they're going to have to like let you do what you're, whether it be bodyboarding on the world tour, you, you just have to be so determined that things kind of get out of your way, if that makes sense. Oh, it does. I had uh, Bethany. No, Bethany, yeah, she, she's a family friend too. Her her brother Timmy's a real close friend of mine. Brilliant, yeah. So I had her on the show and uh, she was, again, you, you know, she in herself is, is so humble. But when you watch the footage of all the training that she did and then she has that, you know, horrendous incident and then the, the bloody-mindedness like, no, I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna surf in the adapted division. I'm, I'm just going to be everyone minus one arm. I mean, so again, yes, there's, of course, talent, burning desire, but there's, there's the, the hard work that allows that talent to manifest that people don't it's talk what about. What you don't see, and, and honestly with her, what you don't see is incredible. She's a mom. The last time um, I was, I've seen her since then, but I went down to Chopu in uh, 2018 and Timmy and her were down there and Timmy was surfing with her and doing water patrol. And she was paddling into Chopu, which is an extremely hard wave on a bodyboard, which even puts you at an advantage. I don't know how. And she was pulling it off. And then she towed in at dark. Like it was like waiting for the bomb set of the day. She got towed into an absolute bomb. And she, you know, got down the face, got blown up because it was like a closeout. Took five on the head of like 10 to 12 foot chopu waves and just was smiling. And I was like, I'd be like, you know, you, the, for lack of better words, crapping myself. Like it was a gnarly situation. She's like, yeah, all good. She is an absolute phenomenal athlete. Like there's, she's not there for any reason by it, except for being talented and very determined. So like that's, she's a, she should be like, that's when you say role model. And I don't, she's a role model. Like kids should look up to her for sure. Oh, well, let me tell you my little boy who I think at the time of the interview was 13 12 or 13 he came in and talked to her you know as we are now on skype for a couple of minutes he was enamored he'd seen the film he'd actually been doing her i think it's unbreakable program that she has oh, yeah, unstoppable yeah. excuse me not unbreakable um and yeah i mean of all the men and women that walk planet earth bethany hamilton was She's, one of his absolute she heroes is. she is like she's she can still like no joke take people out on the world tour and she has like if you saw that fiji like people when when you watch surfing, the thing is, I try to explain to people that don't understand it. It's like watching UFC. Unless you're training, you, you're basically watching a video game. You think this this is easy. What she was doing in Fiji was is not anything short of like amazing. It's it's crazy. And she was taking people out of heats who are world tour world class professionals. So it's like she can come off not competing for two years and still give these girls that are doing it every day a challenge, which is crazy. Yeah, girls uh, girls that haven't had their arm taken off by a shark. Yeah, and she's giving them like full on hard competition. They're going like to, to blows with her. It's pretty cool. It's amazing. Yeah. Brilliant. Right. Well, then, so you have these aspirations to go to Hawaii. So, kind of lead me through your journey from the New Jersey shores to the island. Sure. So, what I would do is I didn't have a sponsor. I had, you know, some free boards and things of that nature. There's, there was no real career path in it yet. Um, so, I was actually lifeguarding. It's a seasonal thing. Like most of the mainland, I know there's there's full time uh, lifeguards in California, but um, New Jersey, it's it's actually a real culturally based thing. Like every town and every coastal town in New Jersey has a lifeguard agency, and uh, so I would work as a lifeguard, and then I would valet park and wait tables at night after, probably working like 16, 18 hour days for all the summer, and I saved up 
basically worked till like October and then I moved to Hawaii. And then after that one season, I competed in pipe, um, actually went down your way to continue on the tour and make some more money. I went down to Palm Beach and lifeguarded right after the North Shore season for about two months. And then I moved to Mexico to train. And then um, little by little, I was getting my name after that Hawaii season and then um, trying to chase big waves because I was good in the medium sized stuff, decent, but I needed the challenge of the stuff that I couldn't get in New Jersey. And that was right after high school. So I, I graduated young. I was, I was still only 18 at this time. And then while I was 18, when I was leaving Porto, I got a call and they said, hey, there's one wild card spot left for Chopu. Um, it was the, it was the GOP or the, or GOB, the global organization of body at the time. Do you want it? We're offering it to you. You got to tell us now. And I was like, yeah, I'm coming. And I was, I was all the way back in New Jersey now leaving Mexico. I got on a plane, flew back across the world and got to compete at Chopu, which is like everyone's dream. You don't get into Chopu. Like you don't get an offer at Chopu of one. They're not going to, uh, they're not going to bet on you at least providing a show and big wipeouts or charging. And normally guys don't even get to get to surf Chopu. And that one event got me moving, got me enough recognition, didn't win or anything. These guys are way above my level at that time. But I, I basically was able to establish myself as that I'm not going to hold back. Like I would at least charge. And then the next year I actually got on tour. So the next year I competed and I was, uh, I got to do this thing called the super tour, which is in uh, bodyboarding is still looked at as the craziest thing that's ever happened. They, they picked uh, eight of the best waves, the heaviest waves on the planet, and you would travel with a small group of only 24 people and get to compete uh, three rounds. So you wouldn't actually compete um, against each other. You would compete for just a, a cumulative score. So I got lucky because I was surfing the best waves in the world three times. There was no elimination. So I had this weird like kind of like crash course in surfing, you know, Chopu, the box, pipeline, the mentalized Philippines, all these crazy waves that like most people don't even get to see. And I, but what I did, this is the funny part. I didn't have a sponsor. So I learned my uh, first lesson in credit card debt. So I chalked up five grand, just going around, like bought a around the world ticket and just bombed it. And then luckily I, I picked up a sponsor at the tail end of my first year on the tour that covered everything after that. It's money well spent though. I mean, I'm not, yeah, I'm not a big fan of getting in debt, but not dark. Yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> All right. Well, then with the waves, as you mentioned, kind of not being immense in New Jersey, what was that transition like for you to go from those kind of midsize to these, these giant waves that you see in different parts of the world? Yeah, it's it's a tricky thing. I try to like I try to explain because I, I like to like help the younger generation that are trying to do it now. And um, I wish there was a, like I had this one guy, Dylan Drews, that I mentored out of New Jersey. He was a way better bodyboarder skill wise than me, but he had a uh, he had like a congenial injury where he still bodyboards, but it's dangerous for him. He was going to be better than me, way better. He could have, but he, he, I mentored him. And what we did though, is I was like, Hey man, you're going to come to Hawaii. And I know this sounds weird. Um, but you're going to have to overcompensate. You're going to have to put yourself in situations that are critical. And you're honestly going to have to build skill with a little bit of luck because these other guys have been had this opportunity since they've been 12 years old and this is your first year. So you're really going to get thrown into the lion's pit. And he did it. And I was like, cool to see like what mentally another person can do when you give them like, Hey, you're, this is just, there's no excuses here. You just got to go because it's, it's not the safest way to do it. But at one point you're going to have to put yourself in a really heavy position if you want to be on that, um, that playing field with those guys. So 
I went from basically, you know, four foot to six foot beach break at the max to 12 to 15 foot pipe. They're, they're worlds apart and you're just going to go, okay, well, this is it. Let's go. And then, and it's not the best way. I like to say, I'd rather be extremely calculated and you can do that through visualization. Like I've always envisioned surfing pipe. I've always envisioned surfing choku, but until you actually get that feet in the water, it's like, okay, this is game time. You're going to get some lumps. Like that's just a fact. You're not going to just get it right away. You're going to take some beatings. And that's, and so, like I said, that's, that's, that's all you got to do is you just got to start doing it. There's no other way around it. Right. Well, with you, uh, lifeguarding back in New Jersey. So I, I lifeguarded in the local pool. I lifeguarded in, um, you know, water parks and then transitioned to open water when I worked in, in New York state, but never actually guarded beaches. And there's, you know, any, you don't have to be a genius to figure out that's an entire, entirely different animal. And then you add large waves and heavy swell. And obviously it becomes, you know, umpteen times the danger. But what There's were still, the way I look at it though, too, is like, don't ever sell yourself too short because the life that you save is the life that you save. You know what I mean? So like people that show up at a lake or a river, if they drown, their parents don't care less who the lifeguard is. They want to know that they're they're under good care. You know what I mean? So I actually train a lot of inland waterways on the, in New Jersey and Pennsylvania and stuff. And those guys, I try to explain them like, yeah, you go, Oh, you're, you're a North shore lifeguard. You know, it's I'm like, it doesn't matter to the kid that you save, you know, I mean, you're in a lake and the kid disappears because you didn't do your job. It's going to be, it's the same job. You know what I mean? You're still, that parent is going to be appreciative just as if I grab somebody at a big shore break. So that's one thing I want to get people. If you're doing a lifeguard, your entry level job right now, and you're listening to this, you're valuable. You know, you're extremely valuable. Yeah, no, it's it's a it's a great job, and I think what's different between guarding and the fire service, which is actually one of the reasons I went to the fire service, is if you're a good guard, it's boring as hell because you're doing the prevention so well that people exactly. aren't yeah, getting yeah. in trouble. Yeah. So I'd it's stand true. there yeah. like waiting, like, come on, someone please drown so I can jump in and do something. something. Yeah, yeah, no, I get it. Yeah. <laughs> but with the fire service, they call us when they have an emergency. I think that's okay. So. You have experience with fire. I'm actually, I'm very interested in fire now because I'm, I'm going to just, just to do it for the program. I'm going to do the, start the fire science program. Um, just to, I want to just get more skills. So I just want to understand it if we start doing the scholarships and things, but with lifeguarding, the difference is between any other first responder and a lifeguard is that it's reactional call based call center. You get the call, you get a prep, you probably have five to 15 minutes to get to the call lifeguarding as you've probably understood by now is everything's good now everything's chaos like that so you prevent you prevent you prevent you do the best you can next is uh, respond and in worst case scenario is revive so the way that would look like to visualize people listening to this would be like okay day at the beach everything's perfect everyone's behaving everyone's mining the riptides okay set comes in you warn everybody hey kids out of the shoreline, you know what I mean? Keep them up high and dry. This is a big set. Waves are increasing. Okay. The guy doesn't listen. Another warning. Okay. You go down there and like an example, and this is, this was a while ago, but at Waimea Bay, you have people that don't know what they're looking at. It would almost be like dropping off a novice skier on the top of a black diamond. And I've seen where the fear has taken over people to the point where they've let go of their kid's hand on the shoreline, ran the other way. And the kid gets washed back and we've had to save him. I mean, like people do things in a fear state that you would never believe. So we have 4,000 people on the beach and we have to play psychologists, uh, preventative measures. We have to um, uh, respond to very critical situations in heavy surf. And then 
every once in a while you got a pro that you got to revive, which happens often. You probably see it in the media. I'm, I'm pretty sure a lot of these cases, like you said with Evan, but just recently with my friend Mikey Red and things that happen to YMA and large surf, there's some things you can't prevent, but they happen in an instant. It's like that. And some things are absolutely out of our control. And you have to basically be the control in the chaos because we are in absolute utter chaos. There's moving rapids of water. There's giant waves. There's one person. He's he's far away from you. You either have to decide to swim through the rip and know what you're doing. And, and honestly, there's a bit of luck that gets you through there because you can't beat the ocean. You got to use the ocean. So whether it's on a jet ski or just doing it old school, fin and tubes, there's a lot of knowledge, but once you pick your line, you've picked your line and you have a 50-50 shot of killing it or looking like an absolute fire sale on the beach getting smashed, right? So it's I try to explain when I'm giving these these uh, new trainees that, I, that I'm doing the free program with, I'm like, you have to be the control, they're the chaos. So everything you do has to be measured as possible and just keep moving the chessboard forward. So it's, it's a weird, it's a, lifeguarding is a weird, very unique and I, I actually don't think, and I guess because there's a stigma to it, it doesn't get looked at for what it actually is. It's, it's a very hard job because it's a, it's a very thin line be- between being the hero and being someone that could be blamed for the situation that they didn't cause. You know what I mean? If, if that makes sense. No, it does. And, and what really struck me, and we're going to get into that, but the couple of rescues that you were awarded medals for, um, I've, I've traveled the world, you know, and I've, I love the ocean. I swim a lot. I'm not a surfer. I have tried it and I, I thought it was awesome. I just, for some reason, never was in the right place at the right time to keep doing it. But the the waves in Hawaii, the the right, as you said, the shoreline, right? Almost where the, where the beach meets the ocean is where so many people were in, you know, dire, dire, dire trouble. Whereas in Florida here, for example, you know, anywhere near the beach, you're fine. You got to watch the riptides, you know, as, as, as you get a little bit deeper, but there's none of that turbulent, um, swell like you have there. So that really struck me as a lifeguard and as, as a, a beachgoer, um, was how dangerous just a few meters from the sand is in some of these beaches. There's, um, in all honesty, and it's not to, um, never to downplay anyone at their job, but being a lifeguard, especially as I get older, I see what the value and the, the actual skill set and how difficult it is. Being a lifeguard on the North Shore would be equivalent of being a, like a SWAT operator in a, in the, in, in like downtown Baghdad or something like that. Like it's, it's crazy. It's, it doesn't get any more intense than that with, because you have a couple of things. They, uh, Brian Kailana, who I would suggest as a, a guest one day, he had a, um, he had a good little kind of like uh, explanation and and um, diagram of how it works. So it's like hazard plus people equal risk, right? So you got the hazard, you got the ocean, you got the rocks, you got the surf, you got the surge, you got the current, and you have people, and that equals risk. And the problem is people are attracted to the hazard. It's like I look at it like someone seeing a chunk of gold on a on a you know on a cliff that they got to get to. Like I want to be close to that object that is so enamoring that I got to be close to it. No matter what you say to them, no matter what you do, they do it anyway. And um, we have a lot of unguarded space. So that's why we have the, the mobile programs out here, trucks, jet skis, so on and so forth. And just recently we had two gigantic swells and somebody tried to snorkel, which is a flat water, no current activity and 20 foot surf nearly lost his life by, I mean, seconds by seconds. So when I say is we're the control and they're the chaos. The chaos has an unfathomable amount of variance. 
they're coming from every angle a situation we had today we may have never seen in 50 years of lifeguarding tomorrow you know what i mean like it just keeps evolving like i didn't think that could happen but now that's happened so uh, our job is a little weird because you can only you can train to a point but that last 25 percent of the of the field may never have happened before so you just kind of have to like we there's a term like hawaii it's a funny when they say adapt or get slapped and it's true because if you don't adapt to what you're whether it's culturally, whether it's in the surf, whether if you don't adapt, you're, you're going to get your, you know, what handed to you. So you got to kind of figure it out. Well, speaking of that, one thing that struck me when we set this up, um, because I, I had uh, a couple of people that have guarded in the past on the show, but that wasn't their main thing now. Um, but I look back, I've talked a lot about the, the, the fitness and the, the realism of training in police, in fire, and all our, you know, associated professions. And I totally forgot when I was a lifeguard, even in a swimming pool, in a still swimming pool, we were held to a high entry level standard. We were held to swim tests. We were held to all these things. So tell me about lifeguarding, whether it's New Jersey or, or Hawaii, what your entry level tests are. And then if you're held to a standard every six months, year, whatever it is. So, um, yeah, it scales up. So, from i would say this is good for anyone who's young listening to this that's thinking about getting into first response and lifeguarding so red cross that's the base level uh before you become a beach guard under the usla red cross is a continuous eight uh eight minute swim you have to be able to get a um a 20 pound weight off the bottom of a, a depth pool eight feet or below because you have to learn how to get unconscious patients under and you have to do a two minute tread water basic basic right but again you were talking about pool uh, not waterfront open ocean. Now, when you move on to say like a New Jersey guard, I'm not too sure what like say Huntington Beach and San Diego LA guards. I'm pretty sure there's a high standard there comparable to us. I know Hawaii has got the highest standard. Um, you're still going to have to do a swim test. I remember when I was uh, lifeguarding New Jersey, they did do a thousand thousand, like a thousand run, thousand swim. Um, and just they, what they did it is because you only needed the red cross cert to move on to USLA. They just picked the best who did the best from that. So say if you had 40 people, they maybe might pick 20 that smashed it now to become, uh, a Wahoo city and County lifeguard. And it's pretty similar on the other islands because we're at the same union. It's a thousand thousand under 25 minutes. If you want to be competitive, I would say get to 18 minutes because it's a pretty competitive job. Um, then there's a paddle, 400 meter paddle uh under four minutes and then there's a run swim run under three um and all of those are sprint so uh like say i'm i'm almost 40 years old now my run swim times are roughly in the 18s you know what i mean without pushing it to the max my best time and i'm not a pool swimmer uh was probably around 15 50 somewhere in there from what i remember college swimmers or water polo players they might get down to like 14 minutes because their technique's so good but the reality is that flat water versus surf that's your your physical capability and then the knowledge plays a big role because once you get into the surf the pool swimming goes out the window it's not it's not even a thing you need to know use the currents the surf etc but once you're in okay so say if that's the base level your run swim your paddle etc those are the base skills that will get you to the show i personally don't think that's where it should ever end like if you're just doing those because if you're doing this job correctly, you've got to be able to lift a 300 pound man out of the shore break. So that's a deadlift and a squat. So you have to, if you want to move that thousand pound jet ski and help, help the operators get the ski in there, well, you're going to have to push 400 to 800 pounds on your own at any time, which is basically like a sled pull or a sled push rather like in CrossFit would. So 
not only do you have to have a high level of swimming ability, paddling ability, and, and sprinting ability, but you also have to have a bit of strength. There is a barrier to entry to be at the highest level, like any job, if you're a high-level SWAT team and you know need to know how to handle uh, a rifle and you need to know how to do a lot of things that maybe base-level cops don't know how to do. That, that's a fact. So everything's scalable. That's the beginning. That's the end result. That's kind of like the, the big uh, skew of, of how far it goes. But I personally think that if you're not training daily, like I work five days a week, I do doubles three days a week, and I train all five you're not doing the job correctly because you're going to only get older and you're only going to get slower just by attrition. If you're not at least going harder than what your base level is, when it comes to do your base level training, you're going to be way behind the eight ball. So I, I just don't stop, you know, and it's just, and, and most of the guys that are up here, I would say 90% of them train as hard or harder than I do. So that's basically it. Yeah. Well, and it's so good to hear. And it's funny because I totally forgot about, you know, our profession with that standard so one of the things and there's some amazing firefighters out there amazing police officers that you don't have to explain this to at all they're out there getting it every single day and resting the right way and all that stuff but there's a there's a kind of middle portion um that can be led either way which is you know and and a little nudge the right way and they're absolutely all for it but it's they're, they're following the kind of current and then you get that negative swell that pull that's got out of condition and don't want to put the work in and don't want to be held accountable and oppose the fitness standards and so i think guarding is a perfect analogy if you had if your kid drowned because the guard was out of shape and overweight how would you feel that does that's no different than a firefighter or a police officer yeah exactly and i i'm i'm on that side of things i i i hold myself and I hold my coworkers really to a standard that if I'm in trouble, I need them to go get me. So if I'm sitting next to you, you need to be at least on par with me. I would even hope to be better because then I feel a little bit more secure, but there is a level, especially like the younger guys. Like I'm very nice about it. I'll do, I'm not going to send somebody to do something that I wouldn't do myself, but I'm going to say, Hey, we're, we're sitting at a place where a lot of people had sat prior to us that have, you know, big names and big shoes to fill. So whether you're doing this for a paycheck, whether you're doing it for an ego boost or whatever you're doing it for, because it's your passion, like I've lifeguarded since I've been 14, you have to be able to complete this task, which is one, save the patient and save yourself. Now, if your partner's in trouble, well, you got two people. So those are the things you got to think about and you're going to have to do it. There's, there's no better reality check of who you are is when you have to do the job. Because either you can or you can't. That's just the fact. There's no, it's like, it's like, that's why I like the same thing we we're talking about, uh, hoist training with Rich. I love jujitsu because jujitsu is the truth. You either get tapped or you tap. Basically it. There's no lies. There's no fudging it. You know, like your paycheck might read the same in a job, but the reality is you got to do the job. And, and in every other profession, hey, some people are just collecting paychecks and, you know, good on them. They've maybe put in their time and I get it, but there needs to be an accountability to yourself and to who you are there serving, which is the public. It's public safety. And if public safety comes down to your fitness, well, I think there should be a standard. You know, that's, that's just the way it is. Absolutely. Well, again, that that the most motivated men and women don't need a standard because they're going to rise, like as you said, way past it anyway. Way past it, yeah. So, But that being said, do you... Is there an annual fitness test, um, skills yeah, test you, thing that you're held to? you get hired in, you got to do every year. So you get hired. I get hired. I got hired when I was 25. I got to do the exact same fitness performance till retirement. And if I cannot, I'm not in the department. 
I'll have to find another job in the city or, you know what I mean? And a lot of these guys, like uh, this guy, Mark Dombrowski, he, I think he had 34 years with the city, maybe more. He might even had more. It, it's, it's, he was the only guy that was left in the department that worked with Eddie Ical. He still comes down to the beach every day that I work Waimea. He does a run swim. He jogs. He's 65. You know what I mean? Like the guy's still as fit as can be. He, he could still probably do the job if he had to. I'm sure he could do a rescue. He's like, a, I would honestly say like what guys look at is like, that's, that's the gold standard. Or like a guy like, um, there's this guy, Tal Hanneman. He works at Pipeline as the, the main guard right now. And he's had for years. The guy no matter what, when the surf's uh, 15 to 20 foot maxing out, he always tries to get the rescue board out. Always. It's not required. It's a very dangerous thing to do. Like you could die doing it, but doesn't matter. He's feeling it or not feeling it. When it gets to the point where it'd be a critical, even if there's no one out, he still attempts to get the rescue board. It's 12 foot fiberglass rescue board through 15 foot shore break at the scariest wave. That's kind of the guys that I like want to be around because that motivates me to try to try to do some crazy stuff too. That could happen in the middle of a rescue and has happened before. So you don't want to train those skills in a, in the first time you want to train it when you can screw up. So when it time comes to do it, when it's, when somebody's life is on the line, you have the best chance of doing it. So, but there's, it's, there's, there's a lot of, there's a lot of that here. There's just, they hold themselves to a standard that's pretty commendable. Yeah. No, and I love that philosophy. I, I not comparing the the fifteen foot waves what I'm about to say, but it's the same principle. You know, same I would I would throw my gear on and climb our hundred hundred and twenty foot ladder, depending on which station I was at. Just because God forbid you have to do that in a rescue, the last time I did it was, you know, two days, three well, days, yeah, a week ago, yeah, versus two years ago and now you're shitting your pants because you can't even remember if you can do it, no matter facilitate a rescue. Yeah, that's that's like something that visual visualization can only get you so far. You got to do that. I, I could see because the the fear element. You know what I mean? You want to you got to like smash that guy backwards when you're in the middle of it. You can't let it take control. So you might as well do it when there's in a control. So when the chaos hits, you're at least prepared for it. That um, I I look at that as almost like self preservation. You know what I mean? I don't want to be panicked. I I want to be the control. Like I, I don't want to be the one that's panicking in the situation. Yeah. Well, and that's the thing when you're in a profession like you are, that I am, um, or I was, you know, when lives are at stake, it's a completely different conversation. I use this analogy, you know, if, if I'm a plumber and I screw up, then I flood someone's house. It sucks and I made a mess, but no one died. You know, if you fail, someone drowns. If I fail, someone burns to death or, you know, bleeds out in a, in a crushed car. So, we have to have a completely different mindset. And people like Rich and so many other special forces people who had on the show say, no, we hold, you know, lifeguards, police, fire, EMS to the same standard as us because it's the same exact thing. We depend, you know, lives depend on us. Some are, some are taking them to protect and some are, you know, saving them to protect. Totally. I think training to the standard is the bare minimum, but I try to train way past the standard because, you know, I've had... I. Fortunately, unfortunately, I've been involved in over 40 cases um, over the last 15 years of, of really critical, you know, conditions, we call them when they're, you know, no pulse, no breathing, water related medical from drug overdoses all the way to high surf drownings. And the thing is, is you're probably familiar with any action sport person or, or first responders had it. it's called the adrenaline dump. And when you get that adrenaline dump after 
and you start breaking down those first two minutes of a case, you want to go through your checklist that you hit every mark that you would do in a perfectly clear head. Because when you're done with the case, you want to have in your mind that you've done everything possible. So that way you fail, you gave that person the best chance they had at survival. And then, hey, things people come to the beach with medical conditions, surfers take chances. Those are the things you can't change, but you did your job as best you can. Then you got nothing to really think about. Then then life can just be life, in my opinion. If you did what you're supposed to do and held yourself to an accountability and did it right, great. I can go home and sleep at night. That's that's the way I look at it. And that's what I want. I want to I don't want I don't want to be disturbed because I made critical mistakes or or I picked the I picked the wrong situation or I wasn't doing what I was supposed to do. I want to just keep moving through life and go like, hey, I was the control that I needed to be. I did everything possible and my partners did everything possible. And then life is life. You know what I mean? That's then it goes on from there. Yeah. Well I think that's such an important part from the mental health element too. If you know that you did everything because I've I've lost a lot of patients. I'm a black cloud. You know, a lot, yeah, yeah, yeah. Those are the ones you remember. Yeah. Like the ones like it was funny when you were talking about those other rescues. Like the ones that like yeah they're great they're that and I'm awesome. But the two or three guys that I've uh, I think was had two guys one off duty and one on duty that passed away. I remember those. And then I had a um, I've had a medical prior that actually didn't. A lot of this stuff with water if you if you know what you're doing and you get to them in time you can get them back. But I, I'm telling you the truth. The guys that you lose are the ones that you're like, okay, like that that was heavy. You know what I mean? So that's the way it goes. But I think that's just it. If you, as you said, if you know in your heart of heart, though, you did everything. You know, you did, you, your your toe was good. You got them out fast. Your CPR was good. Then that, that, that next part is out of your hands. But if you know damn well that you could have saved them, but you were fumble fucking around in the waves because you, you weren't as fit as you should have been and you couldn't remember your compression ratio, then that would be a different thing that might haunt you the rest of your life. Whatever it may be, all the things that can happen. But as long as you, you move through the, mo- like I said, the chess pieces need to be moved forward. You know, that's, that's the idea. Like keep moving through the chaos. And I, and I, luckily so far, I'm going to knock on wood. I personally feel like I, I'm good right now. I sleep very well. And it's because, you know, a little bit, you know, you know, that term, like a little bit of rest, a little bit of sleep. And then you're, you're, you're far back. I just try never to let myself get too apathetic to what we do. It's always like, yep, well, winter's coming, get training. You know what I mean? Like things can happen tomorrow. There could be a car wreck behind the tower that you were expecting to be a water day. And now you're working on a triage. You can't, you kind of got to just think of all, and it happens all the time. It's, it's constantly moving. And I, and from like my friends that are fire, the amount of caseload, like in all honesty, we get a lot of rescues, but the medical caseloads that fire and EMS get are at a higher rate. So just the amount of percentages that those guys deal with is like, you're going to get every type of medical and every type of triage you could possibly over a career. So you better be ready for it, I'm assuming. Yeah. Uh, Well, exactly. And we're jack of all trades, master of none. You know, I guess that's the one good thing about when you're guarding that that is a slightly narrower field, even though, like you said, it could be flat water, it could be, you know, crazy waves, but um, it could be things that are in. That's what I want to talk about next. So you've trained diligently, you've controlled what you control. Uh, a couple of my guests uh, have been the recipient of shark attacks, Bethany and then uh, Paul DeGelder as well. So I'm assuming that wasn't a big threat in New Jersey. So tell me about some of the incidents. Well, New Jersey, not so much. I know they're there and, and maybe it's it's changing a little bit because there has been a lot of sightings, like especially I think it's more like New England, like, you know, like Cape Cod, there's been a lot. But Hawaii, my, my neighbor, um, Colin, 
he, uh, uh, Colin Cook, if you ever want to, he's a great guy. He's an adaptive surfer. Now he's a great surfer and, uh, and surfboard shaper. He competes in the adaptive surfing uh, games, but he was bit by a shark literally no more than 200 yards from my house. And another good friend tourniqueted him with a leash and saved his life. Um, the limb wasn't salvageable, but it saved his life. Florida, you guys get them nonstop. Australia, where I used to travel a lot, they've seemed to have an uptick, especially in Western Australia. And, and uh, like, and we would call it like the Northeast, but like Burley Heads and the Gold Coast, they've had a, a high rate too. Um, that incident with Colin and then knowing Bethany as well, which is, you know, like think of the percentages of that uh, has kind of changed my view of that as being a serious thing that can happen. So the, uh, I think I got one right here. You can't see it, but you could, you could see it, these kits. So I put these kits together and they have um, a guy in Florida, actually, uh, Carson, I'll give it to you. He has this thing called um, the Omna tourniquet and he was an SF guy and it, it's a, uh, a tourniquet. Uh, easiest way to explain it kind of has like a snowboard binding on it and it's got a really good compression a thicker compression but the main thing about it is that it was meant for water he made it into a surf leash i thought that was really cool so i throw those in those kits because the one issue you have is great you can stop the bleed uh with a leash but the the, the width of it is not uh good for for slowing down even perfusion of the arm so a cat tourniquet the omna those are the things that are needed to really like be on it and guys have lost their lives there was a guy in uh maui that just had a, a a loss of life right before the wsl contest um putting up these kits freely like we get them donated we're like hey this is an unguarded beach this is going to be a tourniquet this is a co2 rescue tube there's no lifeguard here but you still can respond if you're a surfer so that was the other part of nod was actually because of colin i was like well hey man they're they're 45 minutes from a rescue there needs to be something here to stop the bleed make a rescue and then a lot of guys that uh, I'm friends with that are pro surfers, they'll be traveling in Indonesia like Niaz. And I had a friend break his back and they they transported him six hours in the back of a truck with no backboard, with a broken back. So I've been working on different things like inflatable backboards. Um, there already are some really good, uh, if you see them on the NOD site, there are these uh, CO2 rescue tubes and rescue, we call them wrist rockets. So that way if you, you're getting free dive and you almost come out of shallow water blackout or you get hit by your board and you're feeling woozy, you can just pop it and you got to float and you're going to stay above water. Um, things like that just to, to help because the, the shark bites are major. They're, they're, they're very critical. They're not often, but they're, they're very heavy to deal with, but there is ways if time frame to stop that bleed, if the kit was there versus if they're not, you know what I mean? So yeah, that's, that's definitely I, two people in my life that I know that it's happened to actually three, Mike Coots. Um, he's a very good bodyboarder, had lost his leg in Kauai. So like I'm one guy and I know three people that have lost limbs from it. So to say that it's not going to happen, it's, it's, it happens. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that's an interesting point as well. When I worked for, not my last apartment, the one before, um, I, we had gone to, I, I, I joined this one crew in this one station and we had a water rescue boat and it was, again, it was a lake as you know, Florida's full yeah, of lakes. Like an IRV or something. Yeah, yeah. So just a flat bottom boat with, with enough space to actually, you know, pull someone on. But what they hadn't done, there wasn't a cert. So anyone could be assigned to that. So people that never towed a boat back to boat jumped into water. There's no swim test, but then, and well, it had a prop on it. A it prop, like yeah. A Open prop, yeah. Yeah. Danger, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So, and it had the kind of flip down um, step on the front. But one of the things we did is I, having a lifeguarding background, I'm like, all right, well, let's go, let's train properly. So one of the first things that I showed them when we put the backboard in, the dry land backboard, and they tried to take people down, it was like, it all came off like that. So until you actually test 
your oh, you equipment got, yeah. under conditions. Yeah. So with with that tourniquet, people don't think about that. An ocean, you know, a wet rescue might be very different to application to on land. So the fact that you know you're thinking about that, and even the backboard. I remember the 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 aquatic oh, backboards it's, it's were skill. excellent. Backboarding is is a really big skill to have. Yeah, yeah, but they're they're buoyant. They they're all Velcro. They actually hold the patient very well to that board. Our dry land ones are absolute dog shit. I mean, the patient's yeah, sliding yeah. all over the place, even when it's not wet. So. Yeah, so we can actually take a lot, I think, even from the lifeguarding world when it comes to immobilization and, and you know, definitely the water rescue side. I, I would honestly say a lifeguard in Hawaii, their their C-spine precautions, they're excellent at it because the shore break leads to a lot of uh, neck and back injuries and the reps in training and the reps in the real world, we get a lot of it. Um, I was just doing private training, one for one of the NOD students and then a corporate boat we were using on the west side. Uh, of this island. I do it often, but these, so they have these like snorkel tours and like eco tours where they go see dolphins and whales and that nature. And, you know, these are people that are uh, there on their own fruition, but they might have a medical condition or just a bad day and have a heart attack in the water. And then you got to extricate the patient onto the boat, to start CPR. And you have all these different type of boats. You got like a giant inflatable type of coast guard boat. You got a, a double cat, um, uh, you know, uh, uh, sailboat, you've got all these uh, fishing style, like, you know, say like a rat in or something like that. And you still got to get the patient onto that hull from the gunnel. So, Hey, is there a prop? Do we cut the engine and drift and drop a line? Do we motor up and then pull and then grab them? How does the rescue bring the patient safely to the back of the boat or where the entrance is? And then with the backboard, backboarding them out of the water depends on the boat or the vehicle uh, that they're using. Because once you dip, like you said, say that backboard is buoyant, it'll get squirrely. So you have to time the dip to grab the wrist, to grab the second wrist, pin the hips to the board. And I've only learned the best techniques from doing it over and over and on these boats. And now I have like a uh, one size fits all that I train these guys how to get the patient on the board so they can actually do the training of the CPR and the C-spining that I've taught them. But in a in a very strange setting. You know what I mean? Like that's unique to its own business. So yeah, you have to, and the same thing is with, with lifeguarding, like uh, doing a C-spine at YMA and heavy shore break is different than doing in flat water where you can maybe even put the board in and get them uh, on the board without even manipulating them. Getting them at a 10 foot shore break with the neck injury is, is its own animal. You're going to have to head cram them and do these other um, spinal uh, stabilization techniques that they don't really do anywhere else in the world. So it's a process. It's a process to get good at it, you know? Yeah. Well, I think that's the thing. I didn't even think about it. And I've been doing, you know, this project and being a firefighter for 14 years. But that's another group of men and women, another pool that we really don't pull from very much is the lifeguarding community, especially at the high level that you're at. Yeah, yeah. It's just it's just every – I think every uh, profession, whether you're talking to Rich, you're talking to yourself – like I, like I said, I'm, I'm going to do the fire sciences just because I want to know more what other first responders are doing and understanding like the elements that they deal with because it will give you uh, an appreciation to what every kind of stage of first response is doing. And like, you know, as well as I do, like the first two to five minutes of a case is probably the most important thing for that patient. Because if you don't do that job right, the ER doctors are going to have, have no, you know, slim to no chance if you didn't do those things correct. If you didn't, you know, do the spinal, spinal mitigation properly, if you didn't do proper CPR, if you didn't recognize the rescue and so on and so forth. 
Right. Well, you you're talking about rescues, so I would love to touch on Jamie and Evan's rescues. I know they're they're just two of of many that you've made, but obviously they were filmed. They were of you know high profile men. So tell me about each of those, and in any way, if they were different to each other. Yeah, they they were different. Um, the reason. So I'll go. Evans was a high profile one, so it's not like I'm like I said, like I'm talking about something that everyone already knows. So it's okay. Um, Evan was was a special one. I've had plenty of off-duty, plenty of on-duty that are very similar. It was extremely special to me because my one of my close friends, Andre Botha, who I was explaining to you, I've known since you know since I got on the tour when I was 18. We've been friends. We've been travel mates. Like he was my one of my guys that I looked up to to get better at bodyboarding. He was the first one on the scene. He grabbed Evan. He recognized it. We responded. I met him halfway in the shore break. So he saw him go down. If you watch the video, he followed the current line, grabbed him. My partner, I swam out. I uh, basically did a modified head cram underwater, grabbing him from Andre, like the transfer. Sometimes like we were talking about this, some things just happen perfectly. You get, you know, you know what you're doing, but also the elements are on your side. I still to this day have never transferred a patient underwater into my arms to transfer the rescue. So Andre was fatigued. He's got a 180 pound guy through very large surf. He was about to tap out. We got there right at the right time when he needed assistance. It transferred linear. The current got me straight to Evan, got him underwater, got his head above water. And um, when I had him on my my shoulder, I could tell that he was doing an agonal, agonal, agonal gasp. Basically, he was trying to naturally clear his airway. So I, what I did is I, I would open his um, his chin to get the airway clear. And then when the waves come out, cover kind of like a, a shallow water blackout drowning especially when it's a case of trauma it's not like he was dropping down the face of the wave and had a heart attack he had a trauma similar to like a ufc fight so to say he got knocked out the water is what the biggest problem was once we got him to the beach um within about 30 seconds he became conscious and uh luckily his girlfriend was there and to calm him down and in all honesty it was one of the simpler even though it looked like a very chaotic scene it was one of the simpler cases because we did not have to do cpr on him his uh, own brain function was was coming slowly back as we were bringing him in. That's why I kept his head above water. And the only reason I knew to do that is because I, before that, I had about 10 other similar cases off duty and on duty at Pipeline, all the same thing. Their traumas, head injury, have to mitigate the neck, but you know, life over limb. We're more worried about the unconscious nature of it, but his own airway and then venting right when we got there with oxygen, he came right back, puked up all the water had a ton of water, you know, he drifted for about a minute, um, through the, sh- for the shoreline between the both of us, but great case. Now, Jamie, the difference was Jamie, the surf was a little bit smaller. Jamie, just like Evan is an insane surfer. Um, but is proof in point. It can happen to the best surfer in the world at pipeline. Jamie hit his head, but which I think is, uh, you know, a testament to what Jamie's forward thinking is, his float suit, when I watched him uh, come up, he was up above water because he had flotation, which is a massive difference. Because when I got to Jamie, he was coming in and out of consciousness because of the float suit because his airway was already above. He came back just like Evan, just like the the dozens of others that I've come came back with with adrenaline because when these guys come back, have you ever seen uh you ever see someone get knocked out on a MMA fight and then they grab the ref and they come back and they're still fighting? Yes, many Same times. Same <laughs> They don't know what happened and they kind of have a, a, a recollection of what they were doing prior and then the adrenaline hits. So Jamie, I just had to be like, hey, man, we got to go in. 
he was kind of mumbling, um, had, uh, his, his eyes, his pupils, one was dilated, the other one was constricted. So you could tell there was definitely, you know, there was a wound, a bit major wound. He had a concussion. We went in. The funny thing was, is that Jamie didn't remember me bringing him in until later because it was very gnarly, um, head injury. But the, the cool difference between those two, just to keep on those two is that, Hey, look what the difference was. Evan didn't have a float suit. Very, very fortunate uh, during guarded hours, so on and so forth. Jamie's one was before hours. I wasn't wasn't working. I was actually just surfing uh, before work and then opened up the tower, patched him up and and got him secondary care. But the difference was that one is their head was above water by the mechanism of the float suit. Again, surf related injuries versus, say, like a snorkel, someone having a heart attack while they're swimming from exertion. They're two totally different things. So it's kind of case management. What like experience like what you had you kind of can see what you're looking at when you're going into the scenario or just by the call because you've heard it like oh i have an idea what this is going to be like or what to do so for those two cases i think they were as much as they were uh critical they were kind of rudimentary to me because i've already had that prior and i kind of knew what was coming and what to what to expect because of the time frames of the trauma in water to the beach like we got to get into the beach we got to get his airway clear this is a, this is a, he didn't have a heart attack. This is a trauma. So we're going to have to mind his C-spine, but also get his airway open and vent him. And if it takes longer than, you know, uh, amount of time, we're going to be compressing on him. So it's just like those things in that order are going to have to be done very quickly. Uh, yeah. Well, that, I mean, it was, was really cool. <laughs> yeah. Well, and they were both caught on, on film. So for people listening, Jamie O'Brien was one surfer and Evan Geiselman was the other. And there's also, I think it was Surf Magazine, they did an interview with Evan shortly after. And you talk about the value of saving a life, especially a young life. I mean, he looked like he was, what, 20 or something? Very, very yeah, young. Guy. Yeah, um, up and still is, you know? Yeah, so, but he was so moved by the experience and so the, the, the sense of gratitude, the sense of community that he talks about, I mean, it moved him to tears. So I urge people listen, listening to not only watch the videos of the rescues, but also watch that interview and, and see this is what happens when you save a life. This is what happens when you train diligently and own your fitness and own your skills, because this could have been a funeral. Yeah. And you know, that's, it's a testament to like my friend, Andre, that guy is a specimen. Look about, he's, he's legit one of the best watermen ever. And I think in Evan's case, he, had two things really going for him. He had a rare fact that there was an elite athlete looking out for him right where he ate it. And then he had good guards that were ready to go right after. That doesn't happen in a lot of too many other places except for Pipeline, Waimea, and, and a few other beaches around the world. But it, it's it's gratifying for the guard and for, for Andre, but it, it really like, it drives the nail home. Like that could happen to me and that could happen to my kids. So I want everybody to be able to understand that if you're in the water or if you're on land, you should be skilled and ready to help because that's what's going to make the difference is the person that's there, not the person that has a skill that's not there. So it's like, let's get people trained so that way they can have that same feeling and they can have the um, basically the mental fortitude to respond to that because Andre didn't hesitate. There's a big difference between Andre uh, reacting and not reacting. That's, that could have been a body search because how quick those currents are. That's a, that's a, you know, uh, a full on Colorado river with 15 foot surf. It's, it's not a, an easy situation. So those type of things is like, what makes the difference is the people in the moment being willing and ready to go. You know what I mean? 
Yeah. Well, the other factor as well, I, I just came back from snowboarding in Utah. I took my, my little boy. Um, Where did you guys go? We went, we went to uh, Park City. It's amazing. Oh, cool. Nice. Absolutely yeah, amazing. But we just, they did had some snow and then the, the few days prior to us getting there, they hadn't. So the first day, I, I actually ended up skiing the, the second and third just because of the, the snow conditions. But the first day I was on a board and kind of going down bit by bit because my son, you know, is a an advanced beginner, I guess you'd say. He, he can, you know, ski, but he's still learning definitely. And went down and just hit some ice and absolutely nailed myself I, a few days before we've been talking about what it's like getting the, the wind knocked out of you and i told him you know I, I haven't had that since i was a kid and sure enough i'm there ah, ah, on, you know but i nailed my head so hard i mean it rocked me but i wore a helmet and up till about two ski trips ago i didn't used to wear a helmet i never wore a helmet when i skied or snowboarded so with that being said and it's such a you know, face palm moment. Of course, you're going to wear a helmet when you're flying down a slope with there's trees and rocks exactly. and everything. Yeah, exactly. But so tell me about the, the buoyant suits. Is that a trend now? Are a lot of people turning to that, realizing yeah. the value of it? Yeah. And I think um, a lot of it came from the last six to eight years of all these rescues that were happening in high profile and say, Evan, uh, even Mikey Red, a good friend who just got rescued by both the public again and the lifeguards. Same same type of deal as Evan. It's exact, very similar, except there was a ski rescue that was involved in it, which is great. But um, he was wearing a helmet. I am sure of it. We wouldn't be having the same result with that case without a helmet. His helmet was fractured on both sides. Uh, the float suit um, and the CO2, the problem, the, the good thing and the bad thing, there's these CO2 ones when you pull. That's for a conscious person because if you're unconscious, you're not pulling anything. So the float with the, the foam pads and the suit will at least get you to a neutral buoyancy, right? And that was the case with Jamie. Jamie's a very high-profile surfer. He's got a, um, a good wetsuit-sponsored Buell that, that actually like worked on a design that's very functional. There's a couple others out there. But I think the cool thing is because he's influential to kids, and then we got these kids that now want to surf pipeline, and they want to surf their beach break and things. You could drown anywhere if you hit your head. Like you hit your head on a board and nobody's watching, you're dead. So having a float suit, at least the body will come up. Maybe you'll write the correct way. Who knows? But at least your head's above water. Massive difference. So that's a hundred and twenty dollar investment. Like I'm definitely gonna uh, like uh, when my when my daughter starts surfing bigger waves, I'm gonna get her a float suit just because. Not only for her, but what if you have a novice surfer near her, she knows what she's doing, and she gets hit in the head by a board by no fault of her own. Someone drops in her on an eight-foot longboard, hits her in the head, and then it's like you lose your child. You know what I mean? Like that That's a tragedy just waiting to happen. So definitely slowly but surely, these things, you know, like the invention of the leg rope, they said changed surfing, the, the leash, because it gave access to people that normally wouldn't go out. Because back in the day, you didn't have a leash. You swam to the beach. You're half a mile. You had to get through the shore break, your leash, and come back to you. So it's a life-saving saving mechanism, and it's also a uh, basically a destruction of a barrier to entry to novice. So the sport grew, but the danger came with it because now you have people taking more risks. Same note with these CO2 and float suits. Now there is an advantage because hopefully they're going to come up, but it also took these people that were never going to ever surf some of these waves that were barely accessible prior except for the elite that really wanted it now they're giving it um a nudge so with everything the tool in the right person's hand is correct the tool in the wrong person hand hand it isn't a lifeline in the fact that you could still die with those on it helps us but it also brings in a whole new 
realm of people that we've never seen before. So from a lifeguard standpoint, good, not great, because there's no license to own these things. You know what I mean? They didn't take they didn't take a big wave swim test. They just bought a suit. You know what I mean? And now they're a big wave surfer, which before, you know, growing up, there were steps. You needed to master this wave. You need to understand these currents. You go from you don't go to from, you know, A to Z. You go A, B, C, D all the way down the line until you're there. Now guys are kind of skipping steps. So great, especially for children, because they're still going to have to go those steps. Adults, you know, say a guy like that was a because uh, we've seen this. This is just not calling names, but people they move from the mainland say they're from Colorado and they were an extremely good skier, but now they want to be an extremely good surfer. They're getting to st- they're getting to skip uh, making their way to skiing a backcountry or you know like off off grounds in the back of the mountain straight to surfing, which is that for outer wave outer reef waves because they think they can do that because they have the lifeline of the suit puts them in a really bad position. So again. I'm very like the forward um, motion of safety and the tool in the right hands is perfect the tool in the wrong hands gives you a false safety net, you know? So we have to kind of look at it both ways that that conversation is kind of going on right now. Yeah. Interesting. Well, another area that I, or a phrase that I hear a lot is waterman and actually um, Aaron Hoff, who uh, is behind the Kalani, um, not Kalani, excuse me, the uh, uh, Kiali foundation. He talked about uh, Kalani Vieira who I believe is mm-hmm. a, a yeah, legend yeah. out there. So tell yeah, me yeah. the difference between a regular Hawaii lifeguard and waterman. Well, you're not going to become a Hawaiian lifeguard unless you are a waterman. That's that's just a fact. Uh, um, a waterman is a term, I think it, it shouldn't get thrown around too lightly because it's like, you know how you said you're a jack of all trades, master of none? To, to be a waterman, you really actually have to be a master of a bunch of skills. So, you know, you, it's not just a surfer. A surfer that doesn't look out for his his fellow surfer is definitely not a waterman because there there's a, there's a responsibility to that term. Like Brian uh, uh, Kealana and all his his nephews and his sons, they're all watermen, and it's and it's a family tradition. Like um, Keone Kealana is is one of my best friends out here. I love the guy. This guy, like the intelligence level that these guys have in the water, and just the lifeguards up here too. But I'm just putting that in specific as brother Nolan Brennan they've had it since childhood. So these guys can make a rescue on a rescue board. They can drive a jet ski. They can fish dive. They can surf. They can bodyboard. They can body surf. All elements of actually rescuing a patient, right? And those aren't things that are just like, oh, you did a lifeguard course and now you're that. You're not. Those are things from, that's why a waterman is a term that's based off time in the water and experience handed down to you from you know, they had a very good mentor in Brian Kailana. Um, I've had mentors from them. Like, you know, like I've learned things from them that I don't think just being a bodyboarder, I would have ever known, like how to get to 60 feet when you need to diving. I would have never like even entered that world. That wasn't my world. Those guys took the time to show me, you know, whether it's fishing, whether it's it's uh, body surfing, currents, different drop offs, things you need to know to make rescues. But they they come from just being in around the ocean. So a waterman, I think, especially like you say, a guy like Connie Vera, and then you've got Archie Kalepa. Um, I have a good friend who's the chief of Maui, uh, Kerry Kayama. These guys, their experience in the water to get to where they are, it came through time and it came through mentorship. So that's part of the NOD program. I want these kids that have these elements, hey, they surf, they dive, they fish, they bodyboard, they body surf, stand up paddle, whatever they may be. And they go, hey, guess what, man? Those skills apply to a lifeguard you can actually make that into a career like 
you might not have bridged that in your mind, but you can. And that that's kind of what we're doing. That's where it came from. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, that's a good transition. So with uh, Jamie's rescue, you mentioned that you weren't technically on the clock. And I think that's that's where I found myself now. So 14 years in the fire service, I ended up at this very bizarre crossroads where I found myself putting all my effort into this, trying to help the community yeah. that I was a part of. But I'm still a rescuer. I'm still a paramedic. I'm still a firefighter. Um, my wife makes fun of me. She calls me Tactical James because in my car I've got, you know, weapons yeah. and tourniquets and, you <laughs> know, all kinds of shit. Yeah. Like the back of your, the back of your, your, uh, uh, your driver's side probably has, has like your little, your little EFAC and your tourniquet. I've got everything. Too. Exactly. I got everything. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> So even lockout kiss, I mean, you name it. Um, <laughs> but it, it's a very important philosophy because we don't clock off. Police officers don't clock off. You know, doctors and nurses, it's emergency doctors and nurses don't clock off. So I love the the ethos that you have, never off duty. So tell me, tell me the need that you saw on the island, and then what made you, you know, pick up the reins for that particular movement. Yeah. So like I said, um, we had this big movement and it's actually coming to fruition. It's really cool. We wanted sun up to sundown hours for lifeguarding because we come to work at nine. We leave at five thirty. Uh, we try to do overtime when we can in big surf, um, as, as it's always needed, but we've had these cases over time. I've had a lot, I would say almost more surf related rescues, just being a surfer in the water where I brought in the just at duty. And I've had enough on duty too, but the ones off duty, it's like no support team. Lifeguarding is a team sport. You want make the rescue guys with the kits ready. You want EMS rolling. You want the jet ski in route if you have to bring out. After hours, those elements aren't there. It makes the rescue harder. And I could give you a dozen or more instances where I would have loved to have some backup and I didn't. So hence never off duty. You're always on duty. I think we'd be in a lot better world if everyone just took that principle to heart and say, yeah, if you have these skills, yeah, the city or your municipality is paying you to do it, but you're a private citizen in a world full of chaos, our community would be way better if you were ready to react. Now, private citizens that don't have those skills, we want to make it accessible to them so they have a base level. Because a good example is in Hawaii, and it's no fault of anybody, but there's 16 rigs at any given time with a million seven people here with tourists for EMS. That's a hard ask for those guys. And it's a hard ask for the public too, because if there's a triage case going on over here, and then there's a water-related case over there, you're going to be in the woods, so to say, for a good amount of time. People, everyday people, if they know just basic CPR, basic bleeding control could be the difference between a life saved and a life loss, right? Same thing when it comes to, and I don't think it's something I even have to tell most first responders being never off duty. I'm pretty sure I would say a huge majority will react in that scenario. Police officers will respond to shots fired. Fire people will jump into where they can and help a triage, EMS, lifeguards, et cetera, et cetera. But just stating that fact and making the public aware that like, hey, we are literally never off duty. We do this job whether we're getting paid to or not majority of the time. It's just I think it's just a good thing to keep promoting, you know, like just we're all in this together. That's how because I, you know, I God forbid, but I hope one day when my daughter or my son needs help, that there's someone there for them if I'm not, because I know that's going to be a situation one day. And um, the never off duty thing would have worked. There's actually a law that's going to go into play uh, July first where they're going to be covering the lifeguard towers uh, or the lifeguard agency. We're going to have responders starting the program all day, at least for the, the days of sunlight, the lifeguards are going to be responding because before what would happen, and we've seen it way too many times, you hear in the newspaper the next day, oh, someone uh, passes away at 6.30 right before dusk. Someone watching the sunset jumps in the water, drown. No skills, no one there to prevent it, no one there to save. 
fire responds and it turns into a body search. No fault of their own. It's just that's they're they're going to a call just at a disadvantage that it already had happened. There's no preventative measure. There's there's no way to deal with that. It's just it happened. And we just want to see that stop because the worst thing for a lifeguard is to have the best day you've ever had. Say you're at any given beach, right? Busy day, big surf. Everyone went home safe. You go home, you go home, nine o'clock news pops on. And you, oh, did you hear about that guy that drowned? Like where? Two minutes from where you were working, right around the corner, you could have been there. But it's just those, that that's a nightmare for a lifeguard. You're like, I just busted my ass all day. You know what I mean? Like didn't take a break. The surf was going off. Everybody went home safe two hours later. That's, that's, that's a nightmare for a lifeguard that's been doing it his whole life. So those type of things, those are slowly going towards that, which, which is great because that's progress in our, in our field. So it's really cool. No, that's brilliant. But was, was it, was that never in place before and you're finally getting to that point or was there a time where it was? There was never in place. So it's not like I, the good thing, I think, in any first response, usually once something say, say there's a bad scenario, someone dies and then something, a measure gets put in place to prevent that. I can't see it ever going back. You know what I mean? But it was a hard ask because, of course, there's budgets and things of that nature to make it happen. Um, staffing, we, we were only, you know, a couple hundred people. I think it's like 300 people in our division where, say, like fire, they probably have like 3,500, 4,000 um, in just in Honolulu. But uh, the cool thing is, I think now that it's happening here, it's going to happen elsewhere because I, I'm in a, in a email thread and I pay attention to what's going on in my hometown and region. And they're talking about how do we cover the beaches all day? Because it's, it's an issue. You got, you know, light till eight o'clock. Someone drowns at seven 30 lifeguards go off duty at five 30. Yeah. You, there's a warning sign that says, Hey, lifeguards off duty, but good luck trying to explain that to a parent that lost his child. You know what I mean? Like they, they just don't want to hear it. And if you bring your child to the beach, yes, it's your responsibility to, to watch your child. But to say that these things are never going to happen is just asinine. They're going to happen. So I think the conversation is happening and I think it's happening nationally. It's probably going to happen in Australia where lifeguarding is bigger next. And that just makes our profession more professional. Like we are doing what we're supposed to do. We're covering all hours of sunlight in the water that people are there for for daybreak and they're there for sunset, especially in Hawaii. So why would we think that they're not going to go swim or go surf or go fish or go dive? They're going to do that. We, we should be there and, and, and have a function for that. Yeah. And that's something I see with, you know, police and fire as well. There are some departments that are very well funded, very well staffed, but a lot of them are underfunded. And sadly you said about once it goes in place, it'll never go back. That doesn't happen in the fire service. We're regressing a lot. We're having crews that had four on a rig that now have three on a rig. They have two on a rig, you know, stations that are browned out. So uh, there's such a, a priority shift that needs to happen. Like, yes, and someone will say, well, it's ownership. You shouldn't jump in the, yeah, well, you know that. And you're not drunk. But, you know, there's a lot of people that, you know, think, look at it. And as we talked about earlier, think that first 20, 20 meters of the beach is safe and then you get 10 meters out and your child gets swept away so yeah another thing is they call them accidents for a reason they're accidents obviously the parent didn't try to put their kid in a position in a riptide whether it be in new jersey florida or here things happen because of lack of knowledge and just things happen sometimes so it's good to have professional there's the best you can i i hate to see that because especially in fire when you think of regression it's sad because you know the, the, it, it equates into lives lost and it's a similar thing in new jersey like 
Um, there's only so many places where I could be a professional lifeguard here, LA, moving to Australia. There's, there's not that many places. That's why I chose here. But when you think about the fire department, even in New Jersey, there's literally guys that run their own businesses and, um, or other professions and they're volunteer firefighters, which baffles my mind. And I'm glad they have them. And I, I know some of them are my friends, but then if you go a couple towns South and they have a bigger municipality, those guys are getting paid a hundred thousand dollars a year to do the same job that somebody has to leave his work with a beeper call or, or a phone call, go get the rig, drive the same truck. So they purchase the same truck and do the same job to prevent somebody's lifelong, you know, investment of their home and child. And they're doing the same job and they're doing it voluntarily. I, I just, I'm like, I get it. I'm glad there's those people, but it's, it, it absolutely irks me that that's a situation that they don't value life property for fire as much as it is, because it's, it's like without them, there's, you're done. Like, you know what I mean? You're, your house is gone. Your kids are going to, you know, there's a lot of things that are going to happen. And it's like, that's, that's the thing is the value of first response. I think in just as a, as a whole there should never be a question. There should be like, what do we do to back that up? No, it doesn't matter what division you're in, you know? Yeah. It's, it's funny you say that. I just went and visited um, Jason McCarthy, who's the owner of uh, GORUCK, if you're familiar with that organization. And it was on Jacksonville Beach. And we went for a ruck on the beach and talked. And um, there was a big lifeguard HQ. And it said, Jacksonville Beach Volunteer Lifeguards. And I'm like, this is one of the most... Uh, yeah, it's like the most affluent areas in the whole of the United States. And I, I'm all about volunteerism, but that group of core men and women should be paid professionals the same way as I don't understand how an affluent, densely populated area like the New Jersey area has volunteer firefighters. I get it if you're in Idaho and it's a population of six. New Jersey, I, I like the, I talk to the chiefs, I talk to the guards and stuff like that. You got to remember like the money that is generated on the Jersey Shore from the beach is immense. You pay like why you don't pay to get on a beach. It's like that'd be like sacrilege here. That'd be against you know Hawaiian natives culture. That'd be against so many things. You actually pay to get on the beach a good lump sum. So the revenue should protect those people. That's that's just my opinion. They should protect those people from soup to nuts, daybreak to day end, um, anywhere really. And then if you look at like a tax pool pull from Jackson Beach, I'm, I bet those people are great. The way they do it in Australia, which is a good way, the surf life saving. So you have, um, you they give it like a they have a gold medallion is like your your full rescue lifesaver down there, and they're a volunteer, and you can't be a professional until you have that. But they have the professionals, and they call them the clubbies. So it's kind of like saying you're a general good Samaritan that wants to be a part of something cool, culturally lifeguarding on the weekends and so on the busy weekends. You got some backup, but then you got the pros there too. I can see that where it's a um, where it's a, it's a good mesh between the two. But the reality is, is like, try, it's a big ask to try to get someone, try to try to get someone to paddle out at YMA for a rescue on a volunteer basis. You have to be a really courageous person to do that because you're going to die if you don't know what you're doing. Um, same thing if it's, if it's my kid and I'm in the Jersey shore and I'm letting my kids play, she's competent, but then she's with her niece. that's not so competent. I want a professional lifeguard. I don't care if that kid's 16. I don't care if he's 24 from college. They need to be trained properly. And I think they are, but they also think they should be there till dusk. It's just because, like I said, like you're working in the lake or you're working at, like, say, like a campground. And if a kid dies, the parent doesn't care who the lifeguard was. They care if they rescued him. They're not calling the person. It's not a, they're calling the profession. You know what I mean? They want the best available service to prevent the loss of life, no matter what the division is. It's just the way it is. So, yeah, that's, that's, 
that's something that I think is going to baffle any first responder when you hear those things. They just they, that's why the change needs to happen nationwide, worldwide. Yeah. Uh, I'll tell you a group of lifeguards that I was always very impressed with. I'm not a big fan of the overall organization, but within Disney here in Florida, oh, I bet they're great. Yeah, they. Yeah. I mean, yeah. just amazing. Like they're counting I, I, each compression. I might be, I might be uh, wrong, but um, so if it's a water park, it's probably subcontracted, even though they might pay them. But they probably either use an American Red Cross water park or an Ellis, and I know both are pretty darn professional and. You got to remember when you're dealing with like 50,000 people a day, Typhoon Lagoon or whatever you want to call it. Like um, it's it's pretty interesting right now. I'm working with, uh, you know, you've seen these surf parks popping up. So I'm working with two different ones. I'm not going to go too into detail, but I'm creating a program through Never Off Duty that they can adapt surf lifesaving to the technology because the technology is mimicking nature with rip currents and tides. So you're taking inland like inland empires like say like, uh, you know, like Texas in the Waco one, or there's one in New Jersey, you're getting like urban surf type of things happening. They're not water people, but they're being put into a technology that mimics the ocean. So you can't just hit the red button evac and the current stop. It's going to be a minute. So you're going to have to make a rescue like you would in the ocean. You're going to have to extricate a patient like you were in the ocean, even though you might be hundred miles inland these people that are surfing it might be actually good surfers, but they're not watermen just by osmosis. It's not making fun of them. It's just time in the water. So these lifeguards that we're going to train, we have to do it like as from a facility standpoint of a water park, but then we have to add in the open water rescue techniques and make a hybrid of the two for these new, this new technology that's going to be going everywhere soon. Like it's, it's going in full force. So that's something actually I'm doing right now. Um, starting, I'm already starting working on the program, but I'm going to the, the actual zones to look at the troughs, look at the entry and exit points, to look at the wave itself, to look at what type of caliber of lifeguards they have to pull from. What's their background? You know what I mean? Are they ocean guards? Doubtful. You know, they might get one out of ten that are deciding to move inland to work at a water park. So you have a you have a barrier to entry for this type of first response that's going to change. And same thing is there's a there is a very high one litigation, they're private company. So if you're saying with like, say like Disney or something like that, or a water park too, you have a massive population of non-water people. And then you got technology that creates, so they have a big, they've got a big barrier to entry for, to making that new form of first responder, you know? Yeah. So it's, it's going to be interesting. It's a cool project. Yeah. And I didn't Kelly Slater open one in the UK. He might, he has one in, um, it's called Lemoore, California. He might have one now. I don't know because I know there's it's called uh, Snowlandia or something like snow. It's something like that. It's it's a uh, there's a different company that has one there um, than Kelly, but Kelly might who knows they might have sponsored one there. There is I remember back in the day there was one in Dubai when they had those flow riders. So this is not a new thing. Now they have the different wave technology, but now there's one in Melbourne. There's one in Waco. There's a really cool one that's opening up at um, Palm Springs Surf Club. They're, they're going to be opening. There's another one opening in Hawaii. And then I think from there, there's one that just opened in New Jersey inside of a mall, inside of a, uh, inside of a water park. And it's an actual wave. So that's a really cool one, too. Um, Scoot and uh, Surf and Scoot and Swim, they're friends of mine from the East Coast. Really good lifeguard surf family. Um, they're running that one. And that's really cool because they, t- they have the, uh, the surf side of things locked down they also have the red cross lifeguarding thing like we do so we pick each other's brains and it's a really cool kind of like 
we're bringing surf to the urban areas. You know what I mean? So it's a whole another outreach that they're doing. Uh, Beautiful. Well, that's fascinating. Absolutely. I, mean, I can see that as well. Not only do you have the the nature element of the wave, but when you're putting these in the middle of you know, areas that aren't exposed to a lot of water, you've probably got a higher concentration of people that aren't comfortable in the water entering the water and therefore being a higher liability as well and maybe not in the best shape physically either. Yeah, exactly. You nailed it. It's just Brian Kalana 101, hazard plus people equal risk. You know what I mean? It's it's never going to change. That's that's what lifeguards are. And, uh, you know, it's funny because we're, we're, uh, we're, our, our uniforms are red and yellow in Hawaii. And I was just like, that's, I wonder, like you go in New Jersey, they're like blue, there might be red shorts, but it's because, you know, like you think of caution tape, like this is the caution. Then red is usually like, it's like DEFCON five. So we're the barrier between the caution and then, you know, actually having to respond to the worst case scenarios and highest visibility. But that's, there's certain things that like, as you go on in your career, you wonder why those things were, were they are, and they are for that reason, simple, ethos is like hazard plus people equal risk it's never going to change it's just that's that's the base element and now you either remove the people from the hazard or you have to react to that hazard you know what i mean that's what it is absolutely well i want to just go back to never off duty for a moment before we transition to some closing questions um so tell me about the kits that you're putting in these unguarded areas and then tell me about the programs you're doing with the children so there's a couple of things. The kits are a one for one. Um, so if you buy an EFAC, an emergency first aid kit from uh, Never Off Duty, there's some standard ones and there's some custom ones. Because say if you're a tour operator, um, you might want a inflatable rescue tube from either Rescate or um, Rescue rather, and the other ones that we make, the wrist rockets for for personal use. And then we also put in tourniquets, you know. Uh, chest seals, Israeli bandages for the more higher level ones, then we make regular lifeguard kits. So say if you're an agency and you purchase your lifeguard kit for it, we'll do a one-to-one transfer. So for if you purchase one from us, we'll donate one, kind of like a Tom Shoe method, and we'll put them at a beach that will give you some options and municipalities that we're working with, and you get to choose whether it's in your own or somewhere else to an unguarded beach. And then the kids program, which is really, really cool, I want to thank Jersey Mike's for um, – helping us out with that because they're raising money this month. Uh, it's the month of giving. So a uh, percentage of sales to the whole month is going towards the, the youth program. And then the 31st, which is coming up, I'm not sure when this is going to air, but on the 31st in Hawaii, all sales will go to the kids youth program so we can sponsor more of their first responder certifications through the American Red Cross. And then hopefully start that program for scholarships for fire science and other things as well. But um, that is really cool because what we're doing is go submit us your story. Why do you want to be a first responder? We will train you in American Red Cross, EMR, lifeguarding, BLS, CPR, first aid. Then what we'll do is we'll either give you to a program from the state or work with our uh, corporate partners, say like the surf parks, and we will give you a entry-level position in first response. So we're going to actually job hunt for you to get you not only the cert for free, we're going to put you in a position and then, hey, you can be in that position and that might be your end goal and stay in that company or you could go to fire, you could go to ocean safety, et cetera, et cetera. But your life into first response has one less barrier because we're going to provide you soup to nuts beginning how to get into it. We're going to show you how to get into it because a lot of people, they don't know where to start. Like, oh, I want to be a lifeguard in New Jersey. Where do I do? And then, you know, they miss one year, they miss it, and then they end up at working at a restaurant and then they finish school and then they never get into first response. 
And not that that's a bad thing. It's just that we want to foster people that want to, that have a heart for this job to be in it. Cause that's, that's where really you get good first responders is where they have a passion for it first. Yeah. Well, I've talked about this a lot as well. So I don't know if you have this in lifeguarding, but definitely in police and fire because of, of, you know, definitely some departments in the fast being exclusionary for certain races way, way back. There's the diversity push. And I agree completely. Your, your, your police and fire should represent at least the community you live in. Um, so, but sadly, what happens is some departments will be like, all right, we have to hire so many black people, so many Asians, you know, and then they just check off, you know, skin color, pigmentation. Yeah, they have to do that. Yeah. So what I see is mentor programs like you're doing, like my friend Chris is doing here. You go to whatever community, whether it's socioeconomic, where it happens to be, you know, a certain, you know, race or, you know, whatever it is. And you go to those communities and you remove the barrier to entry, just like you guys have yep, done. Exactly. So you can actually bring up the best, not all of them. There'll be some really shitty candidates there that should not be lifeguards. And it's you bring them, yeah, and you bring them in. So that pool now looks like the the city or county that you live in. Yeah, but they're exactly. all the best candidates, and that's yeah. the important point. Yeah, and it's funny because like with me, I, I'm not a local in Hawaii. I've been here since I've been 18, but I'll never say I'm local. I am a local from Manasquan, New Jersey. But I have been. There's a term here, Hanaid. It means like when you get brought into a family, kind of adopted in. I've been Hanaid in by some amazing local Hawaiian watermen. And I think one way I can kind of reciprocate is there's all these amazing soon to be watermen level people in all the different uh, districts of around Oahu, different towns. They might not even have thought of lifeguarding or first response. It's not in their wheelhouse. You know, they're, they're beach kids. And who knows what their socioeconomic background is. They might be able to pay the $240. They might not. But they don't have to worry about that. They don't have to worry about any of it. They just have to put their hand up and tell me their story and why they want to do it. And you're in there. And like just recently, from what I understand is this is the last class. I got eight guys, one from Kauai, all the rest were from Oahu, into ocean safety. They're going to be sitting next to me pretty soon. And I got to see them before they were even trying out for the lifeguards. And I know I was like, this kid is who I want saving me when I'm, you know, 45, five years from now, I'm the North Shore. Like, I, this is the guy that I want sitting next to me. And this is cool because I saw his attitude. I saw his passion. I saw his skill level. I saw his physical level. And now he had no excuse monetarily, n- no excuse, uh, like, for anything that would have stopped him, that would have sent him another way. And now he's in. He's already got a career. And it's re- that's the most satisfying thing ever. And I think you could do that everywhere because, like we were talking about earlier, it doesn't matter where you're from, who you are. It's time in that changes your skill set. So you can be talented and that gets you to the show. But beyond that, you got to do the job and learn the job. And that's going to change everything. Like same thing, like we we just got our, um, we've had other girls up on the North Shore, but we just got in the last probably six, eight years, we have a female and, you know, she's very talented. It's great. But she's also asking questions and she wants to know how to get better. It's all it takes. I was like saving someone in heavy shore break the only way you do it is you do it. You do it over and over and you do it in a controlled area. So when it happens in a critical area, it's like duck soup. It's easy. You know what I mean? It's just go for it. And that's cool. I like, I think people that think they might not ever be able to be the highest level lifeguarding need to get that out of their head. And they just need to do the, do, do the steps one foot in front of the next, and then they'll get there. And that's all it is. And that's what this program's about. Like, I don't care who you are, try. And I guarantee you're going to get better. That's, that's all it is. Well, another thing with being, you know, like you said, never off duty is as a regular 
um, civilian. I think one of the, the areas that I was very lucky when I grew up is every Wednesday afternoon after elementary school, we would go to a local pool and we would swim. So by the time I got to 11, I had a good fan. Even it's funny, I had um, grommets, little tubes in my ear three times. So despite that, at that age and missing months and months, by the time I got to teenage age, I was a good enough swimmer to become a lifeguard. And that's that's one skill that I don't see being pushed. And the other thing is, why would we not teach our kids to a first responder level in school? So if they become a chef, a lawyer, a doctor, or, you know, a construction worker, they have yeah, they know how to work an AED. They know how to stop a choking. They know how to use a tourniquet. Exactly. Like how many times on a, on a construction site is a tourniquet or CPR going to be put on place? Guaranteed in your career, you're going to see it a couple of times. It's just that's even in an office building, they're putting AEDs in there. But if nobody knows how to use them and they freak out, like should, it's, I think everybody should be trained in base level CPR and bleeding control. Just bar none. Everybody who wants it almost on a national level should have that access. Because what does that do? It just makes more people functional in, in that in that field. It's great. And then like these kits, even though it's on a small level and we're just starting out, but like having these kits available, you know, there should be bleeding control kits on every corner of every major metropolis in the US. You know what I mean? I think every municipality that has a lifeguard agency should have an after hour kit of a, an AED, a bleeding control kit, so that the public, whether you're a firefighter or EMS worker or everyday citizen, you could just actually jump in and do something. Like have like, okay, this is how you do a tourniquet. Even if they didn't know, you could show someone how to use a tourniquet in, in you know 30 seconds, really, if you have to do it. So why not? Like there's no reason not to have those type of programs in place. S- similar to like, Harking back to my dad, like, why not make these communities stronger by making these sports and education programs? Why not do that? That's how we make our society better. You know what I mean? By actually doing it. Absolutely. Well, I've got one more quick thing before we go to the closing questions I meant to ask you before. Um, I have got a friend, uh, Eric Goodman, who teaches foundation training. He lives on Kauai now, I believe. Oh, yeah. I, there's, I've done it because that's great training. I, I want to get further into it. Makes a lot of sense. Yeah, it's amazing. Ex- excellent for back health. Very um, focused with the surf community. I think Kelly wrote the the forward for his first book. Um, but uh, with with this last year, how are you guys doing? How are the islands doing with COVID? Are you coming out of it now? You know, I think we're we're um, we're very fortunate. It's it's I wouldn't there's, I'm going to say it's a fart in the wind because definitely people have been affected by it, but. Th- Per capita, we have a very low rate. Um, tourism is definitely coming back now. It, it shut down totally. So we, this is the weird thing about it. This is just odd. We got busier where we thought we were going to go uh, like flat chat, like we're going to be li- like listening to crickets. You know what I mean? What happened is the water is where people could social distance. So we had this whole population, even of locals that never really surfed, decide to start take up surfing and diving and at remote beaches. So our job went mobile to these other various places where there wasn't high dense like beach going because they were, you know, city parks were shut down and things, but we had more water calls than we've ever had in areas that we never had it before. But going back to the everyday thing of it, we are slowing down. I think like everyone, we had uh, probably an early on wave. Um, We also get tours from all over the world. So I think we were actually one of the first places to have it. We just didn't understand what we were having. We, We thought we were having a really bad flu season back in January, February, I'm, I would put money on it that it was already here just because of, we have massive uh, tourism from Asia. We have massive tourism from Europe. We have Mount, we have everywhere. So I think kind of like if the wildfire is burning on the first uh, variant of it, I think we're not out of the woods, but we're getting way back more to normal. 
Um, I think the summer, one of the things I did with never off duty, cause I had to shift gears because I couldn't run my program again. We weren't, we are essential cause we're, we're first respond training, but we held off our kids program is there's one, there is a, uh, there's a kind of like a backed up need for this. So more people are interested, but the other, the other thing about it is what I wanted to do for the mainland was like, Oh, let's get these guys protocols, SOPs, free equipment for the mainland, because if you shut down a whole summer season, think of the millions and millions of dollars and jobs affected because of the shore towns being closed in all over America. So back in June, I was just, hey, here's masks, here's face shields. You know, here's some things that we learned because we're dealing with lifeguarding before you guys out, got out of your winter thaw. And now you're coming into summer. We've seen these things. Here's some ideas, you know, like to pick around. This is what's going on in Europe. I was talking to my friend, uh, Pedro, Con uh, Pe uh, Peter Conroy. He gave me these all these protocols that they were using in Ireland and in Europe. Um, we kind of went through that, sent that over to the, the captains in New Jersey and all over the East Coast. Just had a discussion, but the, the whole idea is that going into the summer, I wonder if we can get back to a normalcy, it's going to affect, honestly, with lifeguarding, it's going to affect so many people because that means people are making money, the beaches bring in revenue, brings in tax, do tax dollars, which actually leads to better first response because that's where they get their budgets from. So it, it's, it was a, it was a trip, you know, I, how many times are you going to lifeguard during a pandemic and then have more people at the beach going in the water? Yeah. I, we would have never thought that was going to happen. And a good, a good proof in the pudding is that, is that I know a lot of people that own surf companies and on average, their hard good sales, not t-shirts and hard goods, surfboards, rash guards, fins, bodyboards, they were up 125% because people were looking for activities that weren't, you know, in the beach park, they wanted to be in the water. So like think about what that did to a lifeguard is like, oh, wow, I thought we were going to have an easy six months. We had a way harder six months. You know, it's, it's, uh, it was interesting for sure. But it's actually good news, though, because I think in a lot of the inner cities, you found everyone confined to a home. Whereas with you, I would assume that a lot of the population actually got fitter and healthier yeah, and during this whole thing. I, oh, totally. And I think that's probably led to um, just the inverse thought that like, by doing that, we've had a way less, very low fatality, like almost non-existent fatality rates, other parts of the world. And also, um, the, the, the duration and the actual symptoms were probably a lot better. One, we're lucky because like in Florida, vitamin D, things of that nature by being stuck inside didn't help anybody's situation. A cold Northeast winter, or a cold Italian winter probably doesn't help a flu. It won't help COVID. You need certain things. You need the sunlight, you need exercise. But I think, you know, there's, there's good and bad in every situation. Maybe the, the global population learned that like preventative measures like lifeguarding in your life health will lead to less misfortune in the future. So, Hey, if you didn't take walks before, now you're taking walks. If you didn't get some before, now you're thinking about getting sun, you know, the, the scare factor, just like you use in lifeguarding to prevent, you know, like, Hey, that will kill you. And this is the reason you take that in preventative health and preventative lifeguarding. They're, they're one, they're synonymous. That's, that's how you just build stronger people. You know, you, you teach them why, you give them a concept, and then let them run with the concept, and they can change their life. That's, Absolutely. That's, I think, positive from it. I love that analogy, actually. I mean, the ocean will kill you if you don't know how to swim. But if you learn to swim and you're fit and, you know, you understand yeah. the currents and you learn to surf, then you are very resilient and the ocean becomes a joy then. Yeah, and it actually it makes you stronger, you know, so that's, that's, that's life. It's a good lesson for life in general. Love it. Well, that's a great place to transition. So 
and I, by the way, I could talk for another two hours. You're, yeah, you're yeah. a wealth of information. <laughs> um, so the first closing question I love to ask, is there a book that you love to recommend? It can be related to what we've discussed today or something completely different. Uh, I just reread um, The Alchemist. Um, the Alchemist, which was good because it kind of it kind of goes over your your kind of point A to point point Z in life and what happens in between actually defines you as a person. What people kind of you know like, like like right now, I would say I still identify as a lifeguard, but there's so many other things that come into play. So I think The Alchemist shows you like you might have a plan, but it's going to take you one way and the other and this way and that way. And you just adapt or get slapped. And that's a really good book. Um, tools of Titans is pretty good because it shows a lot of high performance, uh, people, um, doing it and finding their method. I don't think every method is the same, but the one thing you see over and over and then is that time in works. And, um, the, there's a book called the archer from Paulo Coelho too, that is the exact same thing. So it's basically, how did the archer get to be so skilled? Well, he watched other people that are skilled and saw that they did it every day and they did it religiously. And over time they became masters. So it's, it's kind of the same narrative. It's just time in, time in, time in. And then, um, the, it's called the, the talent code. I read that a long time ago, but there's a study on Jay Adams and um, I remember I gifted the book to Alex Florence as a friend of mine, which is John John's mom. And, it, and the reason I gave it to her is we were all friends with Jay Adams. He used to live in the house and it was kind of like near and dear because those guys were brought up with him. And he was one of the Z-Boy skateboarders. And then they also had people like Wayne Gretzky in there. And the trajectory of their lives, even though Tuto one grew up in like, you know, the rough and tough tumble of L.A., you know, and became one of the best skateboarders and the pioneers. Another guy was like a hockey player that, you know, um, basically uh played on from a pond to this and that and all these different things that built to it but they both had even though a totally different lifestyle very different uh socioeconomic backgrounds but what defined them was their passion for their skill and how much effort they put into it made them the best in their field and it was just like what it showed me now having kids is like there there's there's not excuses there's just barriers that you got to break down like there's like you have an excuse like that that book the obstacle is the way go through the obstacle that sucks go towards it that sucks go towards it and uh, oddly enough if you ever you know if you got time i actually wrote a book it's it's a non-fiction book it's called um in the wake of technology and it's just based around hawaii it's a good way to kind of get a feel for what hawaii is about and the people here and the, the melting pot and how cool that actually is based in a fictitious scenario but i wrote that book while i had um my first child during her naps it was like i had dead time there's not too much I could do except for sit around and wait for her to wake up. So what I did is I learned from all those different people that have done it and how to eat the apple one bite at a time. And over a six month period, all of a sudden I wrote a book, you know what I mean? And I'm not, I'm not a, I'm not a literary phenom. I'm not anything of that, but I'm just, I'm just showing you like, if you have a goal and you see other people that have done it, you can accomplish that by just eating the apple one bite at a time and moving that chess pieces forward. And then you'll end up like, Oh wow, I'm here. You know, it's, it's a good, I think all those those books all have the same kind of concept. And I think that drilling that back in your mind every time you're down in the dumps, like oh, I'm not making progress, or like just do something that will get the chess piece forward and you'll get there at one point. Beautiful. Yeah. Well, I know in the wake of technology says it's it's part of the ISO series, series meaning yes, more than one. Series. Is there another one yeah. coming? I already have the spec on the second one, but, and I, and I already mind mapped it and things like that a while ago. It's just 
my son is like encompassed my life lately. So I told my wife, I was like, this is my goal. I want to go back to go back to school and finish fire sciences because you can do it online now. And hopefully, you know, I'm one of those guys that she goes like, you like to tell people what you're going to do. And I'm like, I'm like, well, it's some people don't say what they're going to do and they keep it to themselves. And, and I agree. That's a great way to be. I like to project it into the ether because if I don't say it, then I don't think I'll do it. But I like to say it so that way I'm accountable to what my goal is. And there's there's two ways of looking at that. But that so I want to do that, and then I'm going to reassess how you know the the second. I already, it's I would say the book's already written in my head, so I know what to do next. But now it's just okay. Let's let's get this kid in the surf for a little bit. You know, brilliant. You know, that's, yeah. Well, I know you wrote uh, screenplay as well or script. Uh, yeah, I did it. I did it. Okay. So this, this is just a little, this is funny. I was actually talking about with my wife. The reason I got into writing is very odd. Um, I was really into CrossFit. I know these two things are not synonymous. I was doing a workout with a friend and the workout involved about 170 pull-ups. I forgot the actual name for it, but it was kipping. It was strict. It was L-sit. And I got to 164 and the grip slipped and it wasn't on a regular cage bar, you know, like the thin grip, the right one, it was on a thick, kind of like a shower for, uh, for, for someone disabled to hold on to with some foam around it. And the sweat from us transferring back and forth, I slipped, skateboard fall, double tapped my head. And I didn't go unconscious, but I had to what I think was probably like anything, a very good concussion. I was conscious the whole time. My neck was okay. I was sore, you know, that and things, but I was uh, doing a lot of research just in case because I didn't want to lose brain function or anything like that and how to retrain your brain. So I was worried about that because I was probably like 32, 31 at the time. And so what I did is I started playing this game dueling back to make sure that I didn't lose any memory because they were showing the neuroplasticity from that was really beneficial. I went on basically a ketogenic diet, high fat, got rid of carbs, still kind of do that now, minute or minute, but I do that because it helps brain function. And then I said, hey, I need a cognitive task. What's something that I could leave with my kids? I wrote a screenplay for my daughter um, while she was in the womb and then when she was there. And then I started writing the book after. And then I just submitted it and it won some awards. And I was like, okay, well, I'm not absolute shit at this. you know. And oh, I, I did write a little bit for Vice Sports before they got sold to Disney. I was uh, on staff writer um, for them. So I had some little bit of experience. I always liked dabbling in writing because you can get your thoughts on paper. But they, those, those two things, the screenplay, um, the book they were more cognitive uh, training tools to make sure that my brain was still there. You know what I mean? I wanted to make sure that I'm okay. I'm good. I can, I can still do some, you know, some, uh, another thing is too, is like, you know, we get older. I wanted something that I could do when my body starts breaking down. So I figured I should get decent at this now. So when I'm older, if I want to do this as a profession, when I transfer out of first response, well, Hey, maybe I can um, uh, do this as a profession when I'm retired. And uh, the, the next one, this is the one I'm working on now. It's not so much uh, a lot of literary stuff, but it's called the Barefoot Brigade. I'm working with an illustrator where I'm going to write the content where kids will learn uh, ocean safety, water safety, and first response through a kid's book. And any sales will try to give them out, but any agency or any municipality that purchases these to give out to their public will go back to the nonprofit for NOD. So it's called the Barefoot Brigade. It's about like a you know, kids that are learning like junior lifeguard lessons, CPR, and kind of tying in little stories to that. 
So uh, hopefully that's out. I'm trying to get one out by summer. So I'll, I'll send you a copy once that happens. Absolutely. Well, again, my son would probably love that. He's, uh, he's a good little swimmer now, so I'm sure he'll really be drawn to that. I think I didn't, I got to get it for my, my children, but I think Jocko Willink did a book like that for like, uh, it was like kind of like raising, I forgot the name of the ter- the title, but it seemed like it was a really good idea. I was like raising stronger children. Yeah. You know the, what I mean? the warrior kid series. The warrior kid series. Yeah. I, I got to get them now that my daughter's reading so we can read it together. But, and that was the same idea with this, the barefoot brigade. It's like all these little things from young age, it's going to inspire them to go, Oh, I can, this is how I should take a swimming course. This is how I learn to swim. This is how I get out of a riptide. This is how I do hands only CPR. You know what I mean? So much things can just be grabbed just from a little one page with an illustration. You never know. It could save someone's life. So yeah. Well, kids, I mean, especially kids, that them and sponges yeah. is amazing. Yeah. I, that, that's amazing. You have, how old are your kids? Um, I got a little boy who's uh, 13. I say little, he's, he's, you know, not little anymore. And then a 19 year old uh, stepson who's, uh, you know, a manly man now. <laughs> yeah, I tr- my, my, my wife's Brazilian. So and my the grandma lives with us now. So they're both they're going to be bilingual. But just I was like, the brain is a is an amazing thing. Like they just pick these languages up through osmosis just by hearing it and the stuff. It's it's so cool to see what human performance can do by having like you having a kid is a blessing because you're like, wow, look at this. You can add a little bit of here and they get this and add a little here and look at look what look what comes from it, you know? It is. So I, I took my son um skiing when he was four. So we we had a big family reunion in France, um, with all my because of my family live all over Europe now. And uh, yeah, four years old. So we put him into ski school for a week. And bearing in mind, the guy's speaking French most of the time. By the last day, this four-year-old was taking the button lift up on his own and then slaloming down uh, like like a blue, it was a more green, like amazing, absolutely amazing. We, we did a trip uh, similar when my daughter was four to Japan. And we did it kind of like a, a snowboard ski, but like cultural too, just so we like to expose her to different stuff. And at the time, it was super cheap to get there from Hawaii, which was really cool. But I was like, this kid can snowboard at four better than I can. You know what I mean? Like, I'm like, it's, it's crazy. She just like, Oh, two lessons of heel to toe, heel to toe. I'm like, okay, like this is, I got to step it up. My kids are beating me up. <laughs> uh, it's cool. Exactly. But again, like you said, like the whole quarters conversation, that is a time to form these young boys and girls to teach them these skills to teach them, you know, the, the kindness and compassion that seems to be absent in a lot of areas at the moment to mentor them so they can become, amazing human beings you know sheepdogs in their community and, and yep, exactly. positive functioning adults you, you ever hear that thing and it's it's a brutal way but i actually like it what joe rogan says he's like just let's make less losers yeah simple things but like that's our responsibility it's nobody else's responsibility no like we want a society we want a certain way get moving you know what i mean because it's the next generation that are going to be taking care of us we want our kids to be able to take care of us when we're older well we need to instill that to them you know what i mean absolutely that's, yeah. 100%. Well, we talked about the book. So what about a movie or a documentary? Any of those that you love? Uh, movie or documentary? I'm halfway through my octopus teacher. It seems uh, just with kids at deposit that looked pretty it looks it's so far so good. Like it, it seems like it's taking people out of their element and making sure like work life is great. But you know, there's other things to it. Um, Try something else that uh, there's a couple really cool short films um, out right now. One on the inertia about lifeguarding that I saw um, could send you a few to that. I'm kind of blanking. Oh, film. It's an easy go to. I Gattaca. Have you ever seen the movie Gattaca? Um, I don't think I ever watched it, but it was it Halle Berry. 
Oh, no, it's, um, I think it's Ethan Hawke and uh, Uma Thurman. Old okay. 90s movie. It has like, uh, I think it even has maybe Danny DeVito was like the producer of it. It, it kind of just goes over it's science science fiction. There's uh, all the everyone is genetically modified in the future. This guy is a natural birth, and he has his brother who is a high level kind of like a seal agent, and he's in the same department, or where the brothers in another department trying to like investigate this person who they think isn't like in the position where everything was set up for him. He has uh, glaucoma. He has all these hereditary things but he still smashes everyone in the performance he's going to get to the guy that's going to get to the next launch to mars like he's so to say and there's a, there's a scene in it where the guy um they do a swim race against his brother brother finally founds out it's who his brother's in this agency that shouldn't be there he's not supposed to be in the pool of talent and he smokes him in a swim race and i i used to use this honestly a lot as when i was younger like why i could do things because when he wins the race and they finally make it back to shore and they're both, you know, cagging, basically bleeding from the lungs from this hard swim race, he goes, how do you do it? And he goes, I just don't save anything for the swim back. He's like, if you, if you take all excuses out from your, your ethos of who you are, you're going to get where you're going to go. So people will get out of your way at one point when they, they understand that you're determined. If you mill about and you half-ass things, there's going to be barriers there's going to be barriers and they're going to beat you down. But if as soon as you make a decision to do something and you tell yourself there is nothing that's going to stop me from doing this, it seems like things get easier. And that kind of what that that movie's awesome and it's a little older but you, you you'll watch and you go, "Okay, cut the cut the BS. You don't have excuses. If you want to do something, just do it and don't let anybody tell you otherwise." Brilliant. I'm going to have to watch it now. Thank you. It's cool. It's, it's interesting. Yeah. Maybe it's not as good as when I remember when I was 17, but... Yeah. Yeah. Well, the message yeah. is there. So the yeah. next question then, is there a person you recommend to come on this podcast as a guest to speak to the first responders, military, and associated professions of the world? I definitely think Brian Kailana, um, for sure. He's he's comes from a lineage of lifeguards. His, uh, his dad was the first lifeguard at Makaha, and he was the park keeper that just had been saving people in the rip. Uh, Makaha means fierce. So it's like fierce, you know, fierce ocean, fierce land, whatever it may be. It's fierce. It's a very dangerous beach, especially very popular back in his time frame. He used to save people. He was the first never off duty that I know of. Same with Duke. You know, like those guys were doing it, weren't getting paid for it. We're doing the job anyway. Brian's the second generation. He helped create the, um, the jet ski program that, you know, people plus hazard uh, equal risk. A lot of those things that we were talking about earlier, he's definitely a mentor. He's, he's, I didn't really learn from him, so to say. I learned from his lineage because uh, Keone, Nolan, uh, Brandon, all their, their family, even Chad, they're all great watermen. Hanging out with them, I pulled so much from those guys. Even uh, this guy, Craig Davidson, who's more into stunt work now, but he was one of the pioneers too with Terry Ahui, which is Brian's partner in the Hawaiian Water Patrol. Those guys have all like been definitely as far as like local Hawaiian true watermen, definitely people I look up to, definitely people I learn from. Craig Davidson, great guest too. Really smart, very uh, adept person, whether it be from like when he got into CrossFit, into rigging, into stunts, like he's picked up so many skills. He didn't stop at like being a jet ski run ski operator. He adapted to new things now that he's out of ocean safety. Um, Rich Graham, like we were talking about, you've, you've linked up with him. Rich, not only my friend, but he impresses me because his, his 
dedication to his craft dictates who he is. There's a lot of seals, right? There's a lot of seals doing a lot of stuff afterwards, but I don't know that many seals that purchased a 50 acre property that just dedicates to firearm and tactical and dog training. I own a Malinois because I seen what he did to the dogs. It looked as a challenge. It is, I would say it's harder than having a kid. He's one of the best dog handlers that I know. He's amazing with firearms. He isn't amazing because he's more talented than anyone. He's amazing because he put in the time. And, you know, he gets hired by big like Boppy and SWAT teams in Brazil and all these. They're hiring him for a reason. He's good. He's really good at what he does. Hoist Gracie was just there. These people, you know, like you seek out the best. People are seeking him out for a reason. That's, that's, it's, there's no other reason for it. So definitely have Rich on. He's got a really cool, um, you know, like you get a lot of these guys that are like hard asses. Rich ain't a hard ass. He's a funny guy. He's a really funny guy. He just happens to be really good at being an operator, you know, for for tactical. So, but he's he'll be a fun guest for sure. Beautiful. So. And what about your? You said the Irish firefighter. Oh yeah, for sure. Get Pedro on. He's the man. So uh, Peter Conroy. Yeah, I for some reason I'm thinking you already might have had this guy. So he's he's probably uh, two thirds his way through his career as a firefighter and created the um irish uh tow surf rescue team and it's a nonprofit that they get uh they do the same thing we do they put up kits at beaches like uh uh spanish spanish something one of the big beaches there but all these different beaches where they would have drownings and no guards they put up kits he does all the rescue he sacrifices his surf time for when the pros come in to make sure everyone goes home really good jet ski operator in a place where he had no one to teach him. They had to learn by doing. And he's got these really cool gizmos, like these little kill switches that he's made himself on his skis so that if you lose, you have one right there to start the ski again. So if you get detached, he's a forward thinker and he's a very competent, you know, firefighter and, and uh, first responder. But he's dealing with some of the most brutal surf conditions you've ever seen because of the weather, right? So we have the Hawaiian style surf there, but the weather's gnarly in Ireland. So it's like kind of like if you took New Jersey and you put New Jersey in Hawaii, it's cold, brutal, snow, ice, everything, and then you got the heavy surf. So I pick his brain. He's he's been involved in everything that you can imagine too. So we kind of talk shop. When I went there, it was like it's just like talking to you. It's like, hey, what can we learn from each other, kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I haven't had an Irish firefighter yet, so that'd be a good one. I mean, all the names would be phenomenal. It's funny with Craig. I actually do stunts on the side as well, so that'd be another oh, cool. interesting kind of cross pollination there. Yeah, yeah. He's he's got a lot of experience. He did. Um, some stuff overseas. He did all of Hawaii Five O. Uh, where this is interesting. So if you ever go back and watch that movie Waterworld with uh, yeah Kevin Kevin yeah Kevin whatever Costner maybe I think yes it. that's it. So if you watch those launch scenes where they dip the old skis and they launch from they they created those stunts. They actually like would would do the, the you know like the the draft of it and draw it up and then they would go out and figure out how to make those skis bury underwater and then release them to do those jumps. So that actually came from lifeguarding because those guys were so competent on the ski that they found a use for it in Hollywood and, and stunts, you know, so th those guys are really instrumental in a lot of crazy stunts that have happened over the years too. And then uh, I think Noah Johnson, since uh, he was a former lifeguard, um, he was an Eddie Ical winner and he's a current stunt man for the last 10 years. And he also sails snowboards, Noah Johnson would be a really cool guest. Yeah, for sure. I could put you in contact with him. He's 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 a legend, that guy. Yeah, I would love to. And it's funny with the with the water world, there's a water world show in um Japan and LA, I think in Singapore now as well. And that's the same company that those stunt guys are the same company that I work for. So oh, no the way. stunts that he invented are done by 
yeah. Is it based yeah. on the so, movie? Oh, so no they'll, they'll ride a rail that's, uh, you know, I think it's, I don't know what it is, 10 feet in the air. And it sends yeah. a stand up down and they come. So yeah. when they gun it, they pop out the water and the hero comes. Yeah, and- yeah, that's where it came from. So you actually get to talk to one of the guys between Brian, Terry, Ahui, and, and Craig. They're the ones who developed that. Amazing. They were in there like Craig was a young buck doing the stunt and the Brian and them were and Terry were figuring it out. So that's where that, a lot of that, the Hawaiian Water Patrol that they do all the WSL contests out here. They're the same guys that did work on the stunts too, which is pretty cool. Awesome. It looks like a good. Ret- Hopefully, it's a. My body's intact. Maybe I'll get to do some stunts when I get when I'm done with <laughs> lifeguarding one day. Yeah, no, and there's a whole gamut too. I mean, you know, a lot of the stunts are not as brutal. It's funny because like I work with a lot of these guys, and it's it's you know when when it's rehearsed and it's done safely and you pad it up, it's not that bad. And you know they're they're in admiration of the fire service. The fire service in admiration of the stuntman. And I'm like, well, the yeah. difference is. I know what's going to happen in the stunt world if we do everything right. I have no idea what's going to happen when we go in that house. So, as you know, lifeguarding and firefighting is real stunts. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Firefighting is like, for me, is probably, it's, I want to dive into it. Maybe I might end up in the fire department one day, who knows. But um, it's just, it's interesting because the fear factor is totally different. I'm so comfortable in the water. I would love to just run through their their physical training and stuff like that just to see if the claustrophobia changes my mindset on things like, you know, being trapped is pretty not is pretty crazy you know what i mean it's like it's the drownings are scary but burnings a scary one too so absolutely well one thing i I forgot to ask you i'll just quickly slide this in um i had a couple of guys don and prime who were the men behind um deep end fitness and i saw you follow them so tell me about your underwater training and i also have brian mckenzie on so so how does underwater training and breath work factor into your training We've done, luckily, the, the lifeguards up here have a supporter through our nonprofit, Ruka. Have you heard of that brand? They do a lot of MMA and surf. So Ruka sponsors us, and they brought out Brian McKenzie. So I've done two different clinics that he's done. So the breath tables, I think, I say, like, the term in lifeguarding is slow is smooth and smooth is fast. The only way you're going to be able to calm your brain out, like, I'm a high-energy guy, you got to breathe before you go do CB. you got to breathe through these, these stressful situations or you're going to miss a step and it's not going to be fast. You need to be slow as smooth, smooth as fast. The breath controls everything. Brian's a master of that. Um, we do some things that are unconventional. They're conventional. But we do the rock running, especially in the summer at Waimea Bay. Um, we'll, we have these little foils that we'll attach to the back of a ski. We'll hold the foil on a rope and we'll just go for like 200 yards pulls, holding our breath just to go like travel around the bay. The rock running is really good. The breath tables are really good. Um, they are kind of like any skill. They're one that needs to be practiced often or the, you'll lose the benefit. So I, whether it's to sleep, I'll do a breathe table. Whether it's going to be big surf the next day, I'll do a breath table that morning when I wake up, as long as the kids allow me. But um, anytime you can control your breath, you can control a situation much better. So I would definitely read Brian's stuff. Um, I would dive into the, um, it's, I actually would love to start. It's like, I have too many projects right now, but I wanted to bring their sport out here, the, uh, the underwater torpedo league, because it's, it would be an extension in summer for these big wave guys to create teams and battle. And they're going to get an apnea uh, benefit from it. I bet it would take off. I just, I've got to work with prime a little bit and see if we can, I actually have a really, I have a pool that I use for never off duty. That's uh, an old Navy pool. It's got a 12 foot depth and a 16 foot depth because they used to do the, the, you know, like the rescue diver training in it, but we have a, a contract to the nonprofit to use it. So I wanted to talk to them to see if they would consider doing it like the, the league over there and start inviting surf teams like, Hey, North shore surf team that, you know, firefighters, seals. Cause this, we have a big seal community out here. They would get to guarantee you want to jump on it. So they're really cool. Those guys. 
Interesting. Well, like we said at the beginning, the cross pollination is crazy. Absolutely. Yeah, crazy. I mean, it's funny because my like my hobby is is uh, is Muay Thai and Jiu Jitsu, and I was really into MMA just as a, from a fan and a training standpoint. And I met them because they were here with I think it was Wounded Warriors that brought them to the Bellator fight in Hawaii. So I met them because I was actually writing for Bellator for Vice Sports at the time. So it's kind of it's the world's small. It's it's a small place, especially when the circles that we run in. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's, uh, I've been asked. I've mentioned this before on the podcast, but I've been asked like, "Oh, and you worried you run out of guests?" I'm like, "Well, here we are. You've just named another six or seven people I got to go to." So no, I'm not worried at all. All right, but the last question before we make sure everyone knows where to find you know the nonprofit site and you online. Um, what do you do to decompress? Um, I don't. No, I'm just kidding. I like. Well, I I, I think uh, jujitsu. It's moving meditation. So if you're having a bad day whether you're the hammer or the nail that day at jiu-jitsu you go home happy because you're so tired you have to relax after so i'd say jiu-jitsu is probably my outlet because it's like uh it's murder yoga <laughs> so to say like <laughs> you're, you're 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 and it's the most humbling thing just like the ocean meaning like when you're a blue belt for the most part you can handle any white belt but if you're up against a purple belt they can handle the blue belt and every day you're learning something and what you're learning is you know nothing you think you know, you think you're competent, you think you're a good lifeguard, you think you're good at jiu-jitsu, you think you, and then you meet somebody else that's been in the game a lot longer. You go, okay, get your ego out of the way because there's always someone you can learn from. And I think jiu-jitsu for me is that, especially as I, I get older and I don't want to get concussions from getting kicked in the head doing Muay Thai, I can get you know choked out or tapped and learn something and go home happy. So yeah, that's that's my decompression. And my wife does it with me too, so it's probably hers as well beautiful love it i can relate completely um all right well then for people that want to learn about never off duty want to reach out to you personally where are the best places online to find all those areas uh never off duty dot org if you're say you're a kid wanting to get the scholarship send us your story there i've got a few more trainers that will be qcing that as well uh my instagram handle is bits with a z b-i-t-z underscore n underscore pieces um I'm pretty accessible. I, I, I if, unless I'm really, I am very busy, but I, if somebody's got a question, especially when it's relating to like, can, how do I get into this career? Well, I, I'm happy to help because I've had so many of those people help me. So I'm very, very approachable. It's, that's an easy thing for me if you want to reach out to me there. And then it's NOD underscore never off duty. Um, if you got any long trips ahead and you want to read a book that will give you some history about Hawaii, um, what I've picked up over the years out here, it's a very interesting place uh amazon.com has the book it's in the wake of technology under the iso series iso was an abbreviation for isolated because in reality out here if something major like we just had a major flood we no one like no one's coming to save us out here we need to save ourselves so that's kind of where that book started from we we are part of america but we all are so kind of on our own you know what i mean so it's that's that's something if you feel like it you want to support it it's like three bucks the book so go check it out Beautiful. Well, Jason, I just want to say thank you. I genuinely, I could have talked for another two hours. There's so much, so many parallels, so many interesting, you know, like um, correlations between what you do, what I do. But it's just been such a, a educational conversation and, and so many areas I think that people are going to really glean stuff from. So thank you so much for being generous with your time today. Yeah, no problem. I'm, I'm glad to do it. It was really cool. Nice to meet you. Hopefully we get to run into you. If you ever make it to Hawaii, you got a place to stay. Hopefully, I, I actually... 
if you do something with Rich physically ever, let me know because that's been my goal is to get, he's been out here and we've done training here actually at Noah Johnson's property for, you know, tactical stuff, just, you know, adding skills to the tool, the tool belt. But I want to get to um, Deep Woods for Full Spectrum Warrior, one of their courses, maybe help him with some first response stuff when he's teaching. He's got really good like annexes where he brings people in from all different fields. It's really cool. Beautiful. Uh, yeah, well, I, I'm definitely planning on coming out there. Like I said, I've got a lot of people now that I know. Um, yeah. I'm only just over an hour from Rich. So either yeah. way, whichever happens first, we'll, uh, we'll yeah. sit down and have a chat again. Right on. Have some fun. I'll take you surfing. I got all the, if you bring the kids, we'll get them dialed in. 